Hi there, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jason Shoulder, and this is Learning to Fail. People are complicated. I know a lot of complicated people. My guest today is Jeff Messer. He is trusted, beloved, and respected by people on both sides of the political aisle. Jeff just lost his job. For the past four and a half years, he's been the voice of progressive talk radio in Asheville and beyond. In a flash, all that was taken away from him. There was no warning, no explanation given. He just showed up on Monday to do his show, and it never aired. The feedback I'm getting on Learning to Fail is very encouraging. Thank you for all your support. Please keep tuning in and help us reach more people by telling them. If you haven't already done so, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. Make sure you check out our website, ltfpod.com, and visit our Amazon page every time you buy anything online. By clicking on our link before you shop, you can support our podcast without spending a nickel of your own money. You can also drop a dime on our donation page. Every little bit helps. But as always, the most helpful thing you can do is simply to listen to the podcast and encourage others to do the same. No one should try learning to fail without adult supervision. The moment I found out about Jeff's bizarre termination, I invited him to be on the podcast. I'd been looking for an excuse to get him on the couch for a while, and now I had one. Jeff is reasonable, rational, and relatable. He probably doesn't have a lot of Tea Party admirers, but even people leaning on the right side of the fence like Jeff. I'm confident you will too. Jeff Messer, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, buddy. It's good to be here. I'm glad to have you. I'm not so sure how I feel about the circumstances. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, the breaking news of the week, right? Dude, what the fuck happened? Well, the, the big story of the week, of course, is that uh, my radio show with iHeartRadio uh, got the plug pulled a couple of days before we're recording this. And, you know, it's it's a big corporation. It's it's very top heavy because they pay Rush Limbaugh a ton of money. Oh. You know, I, I worked for a company that is very diverse in the sense that they want to own a little bit of everything. Right. You know, rock, pop, country conservative talk, progressive talk, you know, you name it. If they can make a buck, they'll have a station. Now, progressive talk is pretty small. It's like 33 stations nationwide compared okay. to uh, between three and 600 other talks. Conservative, radio. wow, yeah. that's crazy. So pretty much. When you say other number. talk, are you being polite or is that conservative? Uh, you know, and I'm not sure the exact numbers. I know there's something like 600 other stations. Uh, a lot of them are conservative talk. Some of them, of course, are sports radio and, and some other things right. like that. So, uh, yeah, out of all of that, 33 different stations have progressive talk nationwide. Asheville is one of them because it makes sense. Right, of course. And, of course, it, it, it really started with Air America back in oh, 2004. Right. Which, yeah which launched uh, an anti-conservative talk radio network, but they really fucked up their whole rollout. The Air America guys had lots of problems, but they gave rise to people like uh, Al Franken was one of their flagship right. shows. Uh, Mark Maron right. was on there, loved it, his show in the morning. You know, when it, when it started broadcasting as 880 The Revolution here in Asheville, you know, the lineup was, was Mark Maron in the morning, Stephanie Miller, who's still on the network, and then uh, Al Franken... 
Tom Hartman, Randy Rhodes. There is a, just a long list of people. Rachel Maddow kind of cycled through progressive radio before going to TV. And uh, Air America itself kind of imploded, but the progressive talk radio kept going because it was a real niche market sort of thing. And here in Asheville, there was a local show created back in 2008, I believe it was. Uh, my predecessor, Blake Butler, and, and a partner of his pitched the idea of doing it. The radio station said, oh, sure, you know, if we can generate enough money to support it, you guys can do a show, you know, Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. And they were they were very successful out of the gate uh, with that show. And, and when Blake Butler ultimately left the show, uh, I had become friends with him over the years. Actually, I'd gone on to promote theater projects and other things that I was doing because there was a local station that was kind of open to that. And when he decided to leave to start his own marketing company in 2012, at the end of 2012, uh, I messaged him and said, hey, you know, I hope this doesn't mean that the, the show's going to go away. I hope that something will happen to, to keep right. it going just because you're leaving. And his response, and I'm paraphrasing, was, why don't you come and take a meeting? And three weeks later, I was on the air. Oh, really? So, wow. Yeah. And did you have any experience being on air before then? No. Wow. No, other than being a guest. And, you know, my, my background, of course, in theater and, and kind of as a writer, but also very political. You know, I was uh, I'd always wanted to do radio. In fact, uh, that Christmas, this is December 2012, uh, my wife had bought me a, a podcasting apparatus, like a basic podcasting setup apparatus, because I'd been, you know, complaining for years. I want to do a podcast. I want to start producing audio. I had done a lot of theater projects. And over the years that I thought, oh, this would translate well to the radio play format. So, you know, audio is where it's at. I was listening to a lot of podcasts and I thought this this is the direction things are going. This is a way to get your voice out there. So I was really serious about it. And then a month later, I was on the radio nationwide with iHeartRadio suddenly. So, so when you said that there are 30 stations, progressive stations yeah. nationwide, was your show broadcast to all 30 stations? No. No, okay. no, no. There are 30 uh, stations, like in, here in Asheville, the 880, the Revolution, they syndicate the programming from, you know, national shows. I was one of only four local-based radio hosts in the entire country. I, I had a, a rarer job hmm. than, than being a governor wow. in this country. There were only four people in the entire country who had local progressive shows. I was one of them. It was Asheville. You know, Asheville seems like a, a good place for that sort of thing for yeah. sure yeah and so you know four and a half years later and it was always you know i came into it at the beginning and there were there were no guarantees in fact they had kind of said to me well you know the the show is is funded through this year right through the end of 2013 and and i sort of took that to mean oh okay well i if i'm not if i'm not successful then the show won't be funded in 2014 right, and so right. forth. In fact, it was great. It got toward the end of uh, 2013. I'd been on the air uh, for seven or eight months. I'd already placed third. I was on the air literally from like the end of January through May. Right. Uh, I came in third in the Mountain Express Best of Readers Poll uh, for local radio personalities. Okay. Out of the gate, I was. And how many in the top people three. were competition? You're saying only one of four in the country. <clears throat> well, well, and and this was the this was kind of a local thing. Mountain Express does uh, every year. They do a best of Western North Carolina poll, which readers just go on their website and and they, they're not given choices. They just type in. Oh, they, they so it's all write in. It's all write in. Oh, wow. Everything's write in, 
And so suddenly I was like, I was in the top three. That's very cool. The next yeah. year I was number two. The next year I was number two. And, and in 2016, I was number one. So I, I kind of built a, a good head of steam. But I didn't know. And I thought, oh, you know, I, I came in third. I'm, I'm really making some progress. So I put out something on Facebook saying, hey, you know, if you want to see the show continue, please let the people at iHeartRadio know. Right. And uh, the program director came up to me the next day and said, please take that down. <laughs> the show's well, fine. We, the show's fine. We're here. We, here. <laughs> yeah. we will give you a show. Just get that shit off Facebook. Well, and, and he was, you know, I, I love the guy. Brian Hall is the program director, a super guy. And, you know, he has a path of least resistance kind of management style, which was great. You know, right. uh, he just didn't. He's like, I don't want to I don't want to be answering the phone all day. Right. People calling and, and bitching that they're afraid the show's going away. Right. And I was like, oh, I, you know, said, yeah, I didn't know because he hadn't really told me, oh, yeah, it's 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 safe. It's a safe bet. So. Uh, so, yeah. So that that sort of happened. And, and it went on for four and a half years before the corporate end of iHeartRadio, which is based out of San Antonio, Texas. They um, they've rebranded since I was there. They've done a lot of uh, reconfiguring their capital financially. And uh, they're hemorrhaging money in a lot of areas mm. in a big, big way. And, you know, they put on a brave face about it. But Rush Limbaugh, who they, they pay, you know, $25 million a year right, in, to piss in, people in, off, to piss people off. Uh, you know, I, I jokingly said to somebody who was on Facebook complaining about, you know, you know, how, how, how dare they get rid of you and they keep Rush. You surely don't cost as much as he does, you right. know, if you just look at a, a kind of a cost analysis. And I, I typed back to them and I said, well, you know, uh, my my annual salary at iHeartRadio doesn't cover Rush's weekend food bill. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, it's a corporate mentality where they go around going, oh, my God, we're losing money. And they don't look at any of the, the high ticket items. Right. They go rummaging the sofa cushions, you know, in the basement Ugh. to try and make up for it. And so it was a company wide thing, as far as I know. Where it had nothing to do with the show. In fact, the uh, Bill McMartin and Brian Hall, all the people locally, were were really pissed that this came down. Right. It's just the, the company in San Antonio. They look at a spreadsheet and they go, everything below this line goes. Right. And so it's a nationwide thing. There are a lot of people who are uh, kind of getting kicked to the curb right and now. And are most of them progressive, or does it? Is there any? No, I, I don't think so. I don't okay. think that the company even bothers to look. You know, I used to make the joke. It's like. Uh, they don't even know I'm here. Right. Like, like the yeah, budget yeah. for my show annually was such a blip on the radar that it probably didn't even make the spreadsheets, you know. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, I can do whatever I want. And there were people who would call in and go, I, we, I cannot believe that you're allowed to, to say as, as freely as you say things and that you're doing that. And I'm like, that's because they don't know I'm here. You know, that was the <laughs> right. joke that for a long joke, time. Yeah. Well, they found they found, <laughs> they found you and they cut you immediately. <laughs> they were like, oh, my God, stop that shit. Uh, so no, it, you know, it's one of those things where I expected it to be a temporary thing. It turned into a four and a half year thing. And it was always meant to me to be a stepping stone to other stuff. And I abused, you know, politely, I, it's not like I was abusing it, but I abused the privilege of having that exposure, that degree of celebrity, if you will, to, uh, to accomplish as much as I could to support local musicians and local artists and local theater. And really, I made the show that I was doing about 60-40, uh, 60% politics, 40% uh, local culture, because Asheville is, is one of those places that a lot of people hear about and they're very right. curious about. I had listeners in San Francisco, 
in New York, in Boston, in Indiana, in Texas, in Florida, in Tennessee. I had a listener in Idaho. I mean, there were people around the country who interacted with my show every day because they would, they would go looking for progressive radio. And there are only like three dozen stations nationwide, so chances are you're in a place that doesn't have right. an air signal for progressive radio. So they would go find Bill Press or Stephanie Miller or Tom Hartman online or they would type progressive radio stations in Asheville alphabetically, A. Oh. And I think people looked at it and went, Asheville? I keep hearing about that place. Let me tune in and see. So they would seek us out online and other places, and they would listen to the shows that were nationally syndicated shows and would stick around and go, well, what's this guy? What's he about? What's he talking about? What's going on in Asheville? And suddenly we had a, a huge national listenership. You're probably the reason so many people have moved here. From oh my all over god! The oh, I fucked it up for everybody. You've ruined oh. the real estate market. I mean, you're. <laughs> I did not get no a cut. No wonder they fired you. I did not get a cut of any of that. By the way, <laughs> none of it. Also, I just yeah. want to go. I want to back up just a second and say that I don't think "abused" is the right word. I mean, yeah. I think you leveraged your position. Ah, boy, I like that. You know, I can tell you, you can tell you were in the business world. Once well, I just that. I'm still stuck <laughs> in the business world. But I mean, I but I honestly think that's the right word. I don't think it's an yeah. abuse of your position to support local artists. Yeah. But you're leveraging your position and your, you know, the your platform right. in order to give people a chance to be found out about. And that's what having a platform like that is all about. Well, and, and, you know, I I used to say, this used to be my joke, I'm, I'm the most humble egomaniac you'll ever meet, uh, <laughs> because I, I really was less interested in self-glorification as I was becoming, uh, and a title that I threw out just for fun a few times was like the goodwill ambassador for all things Asheville, is that I, I, I wanted to use my exposure to create a lot of positive, you know, energy for certain things. And, and I feel like I effectively did. And for what it's worth, I just heard from uh, one of the folks in the uh, sales department at right. iHeartRadio. And my phone and my email and my everything has been blowing up uh, for the past couple of days since this happened. And uh, basically, apparently no one's happy and there's uh, a hell of a lot of pushback and a lot of noise being made about the show not being there. So what that means, I don't know. I don't know if, if that falls on deaf ears at the corporate end of it. But apparently there's a pretty big outcry over the uh, the loss of that show. Well, so what does that mean? What happens from there? Like, does that mean that if they, uh, number one, let's pretend that that has an impact. Like sure. people yeah. march, if there's a, a Jeff Messer march. <laughs> <laughs> oh and, my gosh, it'll be bigger than the climate march. No. <laughs> Asheville, well, because it's real. Well, nobody will, nobody can tell in Asheville, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, what are they protesting? What are they marching? I don't know. It's I, don't know. I thought it was so. just pedestrians. Yeah. Uh. Um, so let's say that, you know, they have an effect and the, and these guys realize they made a mistake in cutting you loose. Would right. you go back? Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I would. I mean, I would have never, I would have never left willingly, uh, anyway. Mm. Uh, and, and that's just me, even though at times it was a, a difficult thing to do. And it was very mentally and emotionally taxing to be that immersed three hours a day, five days a week, uh, live on air. It, it, it's really more, uh, draining than I think a lot of people would think. No, I can it imagine yeah. it's draining. I mean, yeah. it's you have to carry a conversation and sometimes a monologue for three hours a day. Yeah. Like that's yeah. just not easy. It's not, and it's good. It's good that I I have a background in bullshit because that that helped. <laughs> you know, my theater training and my uh, improv training, uh, you know, and I'm I'm a well-read sort of person who I know a little bit about a lot of things, so I can kind of bullshit and bluff my way through 
myriads of conversations, which makes it easier to, to get through. In fact, you know, after the first week, and, and I would go in with, I would do all my morning prep and I would like print and, and you know, I would script a three-hour show and I would have like a dozen pages of news stories and bullet points and all this stuff and then a few jokes that I would try to come up with, nice. you know. Uh, and I would go in and I would start the show trying to keep to my my task. And by the end of the first day, I had only gone through about four pages. So I had eight pages that I left over. So I carried those over to the next day and filled in another four. And eventually I only had, you know, only used like two pages mm. a day. And so I started having all this stuff that I was prepping and not getting to. Right. And so I decided, okay, no, I'm just going to keep it loose. I'm going to look and see what's the big story. I'm going to start talking and just see where the road takes me. I'm not going to spend so much time trying to overthink it and just kind of go with the flow and make it very, very sort of natural and conversational. I think I told you too, I like the idea of listeners who feel like they're eavesdropping on a conversation as opposed to a Q&A session. Yeah, right. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, that's what I like this podcast to yeah. be like, you yeah. know, I mean, it's in my, so, yeah. when I first started it, people were like, I think two hours is a little long. <laughs> oh man, and, there's some that go three and four hours. Yeah. I mean, and, and, shows out there. and, I think it's only long if, you know, it's not interesting. I, I find all these conversations interesting. Um, well, the long form is, is something that people are really turned on by. That's why talk radio works. You know, it is three hours. Right. You know, you're in it for a three-hour slog over a lot of topics, perhaps, but right. sometimes only one. Um, you know, I think people have a real appetite for that. Yeah, totally. And mm -hmm. the thing about the podcast is you can, you know, you, I, I, I don't, People are like, I haven't had a chance to sit down and listen to it. I'm like, please don't sit down and listen to it. Yeah. Just turn it on and go about your business. Like, right, right. you know. Um, it's good for road trips. Yeah, it's good and for it's road good, trips. Yeah. It's good for doing the dishes. Like, yep. I, when my daughter's not here, she can't stand podcasts. But when, <laughs> when she's not here, I just have it on. Yeah. yeah when yeah. I'm doing my yoga, when I'm doing laundry, whatever. You know, I just, yeah. it's a nice way to kind of feel not alone. And also to feel like I'm learning something or just right. being a part of something or getting to hang out with people yeah. I like. I mean, so my, my device has at any given time, 20 podcasts like stacked ready for me to listen to. I, I listen to podcasts from half a dozen different sources, different, right. different sort of, uh, you know, a lot of it's entertainment based, uh, not as much political. I used to listen to more political, but once I got into it, I had less of a taste for listening to it or following it in other areas. So I listened to, uh, I'll listen to Mark Maron for, from time to time, depending on the interview guest. Chris Hardwick does a good show. Kevin Smith has several podcasts that I follow. Some, you know, really funny, funny stuff. And then, you know, things like uh, there's a Star Wars podcast out there. Right. You know, my inner geek, uh, you know, three hours a week they do, you know, wow. their podcast. Especially now there's a lot of stuff happening. So, I mean, I think that people are really, really in, into that. And I, I don't know if, if people listened to my show live or if they listened to it podcast, I know some people did, you know, they would listen to it later after work or on their drive. If they had an hour commute, they could knock it out and, you know, the next day going to and from work. Right, know, right, right. So, yeah, no, it's perfect. Yeah. I had a really, really selfish thought when I found out you lost your show. <laughs> I was like, I never got those backlog podcasts from you. Can we still get those? Somehow? Oh my gosh. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I, yeah. well, and, and you'd ask me, before I diverted down this path about the, the door being open, uh, you know, part of the conversation, the the guy who is the regional manager and my program director, they came to me on Monday and, and they were both. You could tell they were like, we're, we're not we're not happy about this at all. Right. And this was out of our hands. 
there's no amount of sort of trying for us to explain to them because they don't think in those terms. You know, this is coming down from a certain area. And, you know, they were they were both saying, you know, this has nothing to do with the performance. What you've done has been an amazing thing to right. to this uh, community, to this radio station. It's like if it, were, if it were for us, we would, you know, keep you here and pay you more. Because uh, here's the secret. You're like I, I'm listening. I, I was I wasn't getting a lot of money. <laughs> I was I wasn't being paid a lot of money, based on the amount of stuff that I was doing, because this was always a stepping stone. This was right. opening other doors for me to to exploit or to leverage, as, as you said. But um, well, we're gonna work on your yeah your positive spin vocabulary. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, I'm too used to following politics, so it's all you know, dark. <laughs> there, there's nobody spins better than politicians. Oh, boy, yeah. Uh, but the, you know, my program director had said to me, you know, look, you know, there, there's still an open door here. If there's some way we can find to, to bring it back to, you know, do a weekend show, you know, something right. you know, I could tell that he was, you know, because he's responsible for filling all of the programming slots. Right. And, uh, you know, a few months ago, there was some shakeups in, in progressive talk radio. And I, I joked and said, uh, it's a sad day when the only stable things on, on progressive talk radio right now are me and Stephanie Miller. Oh, God. <laughs> so yeah. now you have to go back and edit that. <laughs> Stephanie now, Miller. Now it's her. She's yeah. always left. But even then, it's a struggle for her and her show. You know, uh, it's it's really tough to to make it in this in this business because the, the corporate model, you know, iHeartRadio is a right-wing motivated entity. Right. They'll produce progressive talk radio in tiny little markets like Asheville because they can make money off of it, but that's the only reason. It's not because they support it. It's not because they believe it. And, you know, of course, it's one of those things that lands on the chopping block fairly easily for them. It's like, oh, we can just throw something else on here. We can put a different, you know, format, sports talk or, right. or whatever. So, you know, they're, they're problems. I have that, to they believe that the content of your show contributed to the cancellation of your show. Yeah, see, I, you know, I mean, I, that would be great on some levels. I'd love to be able to. Brag. You'd like to think you were that impactful. They wanted but, to get yeah, rid of you. Yeah, I, I mean, just, I mean, I tried, I tried to influence the uh, the past several election cycles that I was on the air for, and the fucking Republicans still won in North Carolina right, well, because of gerrymandering and whatnot. But I, you know, I, I did. I did say a lot of unfiltered things, but I don't think they were listening. I mean, honestly, I'd, I I would love to think that they were well, like, oh, we got to go gunning for that guy. He's getting too close to the truth. I, I don't think they care enough to listen. The business, you know, the business side of it is, is all they look at. Well, you, you may be right. You're pro yeah. I'm going to say you're probably that, right. Well, that's my, my feeling on this. But there's you know. a piece of me that just feels like, you know, what I noticed, what I noticed with the Trump win is that, you know, the Democrats were swinging for the fences the whole time. Like, what's the big thing? You know, and, and the kind of read on his win was like, oh, it was the minorities who voted for him we didn't expect. Or was this group? Mm -hmm. I felt like what he did really well was just get a little piece here and a little piece yep. there. And it, all that stuff added up. Yep. And it may so, have been accidental, too. I don't know that he set out to do that. It may have been. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. It, but you're right. They're, I, they're pretty smart. My assessment was that. It wasn't this big push. It was a handful of voters and a handful of precincts and a handful of counties in a few states that just nudged the Electoral College slightly. You know, uh, some rural county in Michigan. Right. Where a bunch of, you know, podunk hunters, fishers and farmers all showed up pissed off and, you know, Hillary Clinton's a bitch and we hate her. 
And Donald Trump, at least he's honest. At least right. he's speaking his mind, as you know, is the right. attitude they had. And so they showed up and voted, whereas they might not have otherwise, just because they were like, you know, fuck the system. Let let this guy let this guy in and, and see what happens when you take away the the political party's ability to manipulate things. They right. weren't they weren't thinking it through, obviously, but they were inspired enough to show up. And if you look at the the election results, you find that it was a handful of counties that flipped a few states, and that was enough. I mean, so okay, so using yeah, yeah. that idea, right? Uh, when it comes to the manipulation of the press in this mm. day and age, and I really think it's happening in a way that's pretty unprecedented oh, in this it's, country. It's massive. So yeah. it, I, it would not be surprised if iHeartRadio was like, you know, not a ton of people are listening to Messer, right. but it doesn't take a ton. Like right. if we can just carve off a little slice it's like you know shaving yeah. a, a block of cheese yeah. you know if we can just shave enough of the right. liberal side of the cheese out of the airwaves well, and especially in a place like Asheville especially in a place yeah. like Asheville because yeah. it you know if we can just anything they can do to take it away yeah uh I think you know maybe they're thinking this just furthers our agenda and right. I right. just can't help but be really suspicious of that. Well, and you know, there may be something there, uh, and I'm I may never know, but I mean certainly they could there could be people looking at it going uh, because uh my ratings were up for the network right. last fall. Uh they do a fall and a spring set of ratings. I we don't know the results of the spring ratings yet. Also don't know the results of this year's Mountain Express poll. Right. Uh, ad admittedly there's a certain amount of uh of delightful glee that I'm preparing uh, to unleash come the 1st of August when those polls come out. If I'm still number one, right, uh, there'll be a whole new batch of pissed off people probably. But or that, a lot know, of op job uh, opportunities. You know, of the number yeah. one radio personality or whatever that yeah. award is, is in no Asheville is available. Yeah. He's available yeah. for hire. Uh, yeah. If anybody's paying. <laughs> That's hire. Next. I said uh, available yeah, yeah, for yeah, hire. Yeah, 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 for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. But no, I... I um, I don't know. It's one of those things where it's liberating to to be out of it because I was so submerged in it right. uh, for the past four and a half years to the point of neglecting other projects that I should have been working on and, and moving things forward at a slower pace. And now the question for me is, do I take advantage of of all that I've achieved in order to rapidly progress with some other projects, including the maintaining an election live show and you know there are other things I, i'm always planting seeds for other things right. out there but I, I have i have already gotten all sorts of interesting suggestions and offers out there including running for office yeah i mean is yeah. that something you're considering um maybe i don't know at some point later not not in the immediate future not something you're willing to announce on learning to fail <laughs> <laughs> not not something I'm sure that I, I would want to do. I, I don't want to go out on a limb and do it and then go, ah, no, uh, I changed my mind. Yeah, that's then, something you want to. Yeah. That, that wants to be a well thought out commitment. Yeah. And, I you know, I live in the county, not in the city. And there's a city council election that's coming up this mm -hmm. year that, you know, if I lived inside the city limits, I might indulge that notion. Right. Because that's a, a smaller piece of the pie to kind of bite into. Nothing like Congress. Plus, you know, let's wait. Let's wait until uh, until everything gets uh, settled with Trump. Who knows? Uh, maybe my brand of candid 
uh, talk will be more popular in the coming years. Like uh, right now is one of those things where the two-party system needs to fail. Speaking of learning to fail, they don't know how to learn, but they need to fail. Right. Uh, they they need to really be dismantled. And I think we're on the cusp of that potentially happening, at least with the Republican Party, thanks to Trump. Uh, because I couldn't, with a straight face, run and be a part of the uh, the Democratic Party. Really? Because, yeah, they're pussies. They're spineless, you know. They, they talk a good game, and fundamentally they believe uh, the things that I support and I believe. But when it comes time for the rubber to meet the road, they're way too conciliatory. They're they're way too willing to compromise for mm. the most part. Uh, and I, I don't think that that it's the Bernie Sanders thing. I love Bernie. Uh, I, I have told people I told you so many times because I'm like, if he's the nominee, then this this is not a, a problem. And if he were had been the nominee, he would be president right Absolutely, now. Absolutely. No question. Uh, so people want to change. And the only change option was a complete and utter narcissistic baboon, you know. So. If that becomes more popularized, then yeah, I, I wouldn't mind running for office because I can get on board with that. Hmm. Being, would, a, being a baboon? Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> the other side, the Bernie Sanders side of things. <laughs> well, you yeah, wouldn't no. have to be a Republican to be a baboon. Well, you could exactly. You exactly. could be a progressive baboon. Yeah. I remember one time I saw uh, Joe Biden on Bill Maher's show. Mm -hmm. This is back in 2004, maybe, 2005. I don't know. Uh, when, when, Bush was in office and, and Biden had ran for the presidency, hadn't gotten there. This was before Biden was going to be the vice president in 08. And I just remember watching him on the Bill Maher show. And, and he, he said the word bullshit at one point. You know, it's like, this is a lot of bullshit. It's what it is. And I thought, I like Joe Biden a lot more now mm. because of that willingness to be unfiltered and just be honest. And that's the kind of politician I would be if I were to go into politics. They would have to maybe run a seven second delay with all of the live uh, cuts on <laughs> CNN just in case, you know, just in case, you know, I, you, know. Uh, you know how to control yourself. <laughs> you did it for four and a half years. Well, true, true. I only had to only had to use the dump button a few times. And uh, most of it was with listeners who were calling and using uh, the, the wrong kind of language. Only once did my producer um, de delete something I said. <clears throat> On the show. Is he, I was wondering, is he still? No. Did he, so he got yeah. Yeah. axed with you? Yeah, there was, there were several people locally. I mean, it wasn't just me and that's. And uh, what did they replace you with? Syndicated programming. Okay. So just nothing that they had to spend more money on, just something. Right. Could, yeah. yeah. Program they were already syndicating. Right. Uh, that, uh, you know, that it's cheaper. It's a cheaper thing. And again, they weren't paying me much. So, uh, you know, it's pretty cheap. But no, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I like having the freedom to keep my options open. Plus, uh, you know, my program director and, and the regional manager uh, really went to the mat for me with, with the corporate office when they were handing this down. And I, I, I believe that they fought as much as they could right. to try and, and keep this from happening. Uh, so much so that they, you know, they gave me a severance package. Well, they have to, don't they? Uh, I mean, no, no, they don't have to. I mean, they, they were, I was technically part-time. Oh. Uh, so they were able to kind of skirt certain things okay. just to keep it going. So it wasn't I mean, a, in your it wasn't business, a who's job. on air for more than three hours at a time? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, most, most of the shows are three-hour shows. Yeah. So you know, I would think that'd be full-time for a DJ, you know, for a... 
Well, you know, they, they were paying me 29 hours a week, uh, 15 hours on air, and the rest of it was, you know, considered prep time oh, I see, and right. all that stuff. Okay. So, I see. Uh, so that's why it's part-time because yeah, it's under yeah. 35 I mean, or something. You know, in corporate America, they like to find ways to get around having to give benefits and all right. that. Right. Oh, yeah, jazz. sure. So that's, you know, that was part of it too. And so as a part-time person, you know, they could have just said, you know, screw you, buddy, and hit the road. But, you know, my guys locally basically said, you know, we, we can't. We can't just do this. This is not right. this is not right, considering you know the the loyalty that I've shown to the company and, and how much I've uh, elevated the status of the company locally with with everything that I've been doing. So uh, so yeah, I mean I, I got uh, essentially you know ten weeks of of pay for not being on the air, which is really bizarre to me because right. I'm like. And I, there's a part of me is like, yeah, well, you know, if you're going to be paying me this money, I'd rather still be doing a show to the end of that period of time. Right. But it doesn't work. Maybe like they that. were afraid what you might say or do with your airtime. Well, they I'm sure. Yeah. Air. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I just I feel like I know you a little bit. I just feel like yeah, your yeah. character is very ethical. And, you know, I think it would have been nice if they'd given you a week to say goodbye to your fans, like yeah. have some of your favorite guests on, you know, right. obviously me. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, all, but really, all three hours every day. No, 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 no. Come on now. <laughs> Just two hours twice. Yeah. Uh, no, but I mean, for you to like go through your, you had four and a half years. Right. You know, bring in the people who, you know, were a big part of your time there, like David Letterman did on his last yeah. thing yeah. and Johnny Carson too, yeah. you know. I mean, that would have been nice. You know, so you, you could kind of, bring some closure to your fan base instead yeah. of just one from one day to the next, not be there anymore. Well, and, and that's as jarring as that is. I mean, I understand how and why they would do that because the, if we open up the phone lines to take calls, it would become a parade of, of people, you know, airing out their anger uh, about it on air. And it could turn into a week of that. Uh, well, maybe and, there, maybe that's not what you do. you like, yeah. you do it in a way that's celebratory. Like, yeah. you know, you just, you spin it. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you leverage it. Uh, uh, I, I would have done that. I'm not sure that most uh, people in those positions could be trusted to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's just from a, a business standpoint, they're like, well, just in case the the person decides to use their last five minutes on air at the end of that last week, just go into town on what a shitty company we are. Maybe right. we should, you know, because they can't control it at that point. I guess not. Yeah. It's There's like, no li it's like live theater. You know, you can tell actors to do something on stage and then when the lights come up, they can do whatever the hell they want to. Yeah. In front of the true. audience. So I, I understand why they would do it that way that, you know, they're weighing the options of, well, how much more of a drama is this going to be for us? If we do a week of farewells versus if we just, try to put out fires for a couple of days from right. phone calls and people, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's, they must know because this isn't the first time yeah, they've canceled and the it's show. It's probably a, a universally accepted kind of practice right. in the business. You know, Bill O'Reilly, I don't think got to come back and do a farewell week of his well, show. You weren't, Fox. you weren't accused of the same <laughs> wrongdoings that no, he was. No, 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 not even close, not even close. So, yeah. all right. So, um, what, are some of your that you're comfortable talking about like what yeah. are some of the things you want to do now that you have all this free time and 10 weeks worth of huge uh, amounts of money for pay uh my wife and i this morning started looking at uh op options to uh take uh, some time off and go to europe this summer <laughs> okay i think you deserve a vacation uh, yeah yeah you know there there's some of that um immediately and this is the thing my wife took it a lot harder than i did and, and she sort of said it last night 
And she goes, I, I, I'm upset for you because this made you happy, that this was fulfilling for you. And, and I hate to see that come to an end. And I will say, uh, one of the biggest things that I am having to grapple with is not, not doing the show. Right. Because the show could be a slog on certain days. And it's been emotionally taxing for the past six months for obvious reasons. Right. Yeah. Uh, but also lends itself to political satire very well. Yeah. But, you know, she she was kind of upset because she's like, you're really good at this and this makes you happy. And, and I don't want to see that go away. And she goes, well, you're taking this better than I am. And, you know, and I said, you know, yeah, the only thing that, that I'm sad about or the thing that I'm the most sad about right now is... And, and this is going to sound like an ego thing is the the loss of the local celebrity, hmm. the the ability to go. And every time I went downtown, I was I was stopped by people, you know, to be out and about. I had become that, you know, tongue in cheek title that I gave myself of, you know, goodwill ambassador for all things Asheville. And to sort of go, all right, well, that that ship is potentially out of the port now and I'm just me again. So what do I do with that? And and to see the people who are responding, I feel as though I'm letting some of them down, mm. even though even though I know in my head right. it's like that's not that's not what's going on, but I, I feel bad for a lot of the people who were listeners, a lot of people who were um, who found hope, you know, in in my my show and my perspective and my point of view, who are all going to feel somewhat lost right now. And as as the the thing was going down on on Monday when I went in uh, and met with my bosses there, uh, and, and I'm not saying this to try and, and get a oh you're such a great guy kind of comment, but you know, and I asked them, I said, well, what's what's the plan? You know, how 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 soon is this in effect? And they're like, well, it's in effect immediately. Uh, and I, and my the first thing I said was. Uh, I need to contact the people that I had lined up as guests this week. I need, I need to, and I told them, I said, I need to make a public statement about it. Uh, how do you feel about that? And I was like, and then, and then, you know, both of them were kind of like, it's amazing that you're thinking of it in those terms. Right. As opposed to <clears throat> just going, you know, fuck you and walking out the door. Right. But the, you know, the fact that it was that I, I thought about, everyone else first. I thought about, oh, what, what kind of impact is this going to have and what do I need to do to address it? And, and that was always my approach sort of moving forward because that to me is the life of what I was doing. And so social media being what it is, you know, and this was about 1030 on Monday and I thought, okay, by noon when I'm not on the air, right, there are going to be questions. Right. So I made a, a blanket sort of Facebook message statement because that's the way everybody communicates except for Twitter and I can't do 140 characters like Trump so <laughs> I did the Facebook thing and I, I just put it in there and I and I did not go into any sort of details specific uh, about I don't think that would have been on. you know necessary or appropriate no, I mean no uh, and it's the outpouring has been pretty much just off the charts I I've, I'm blown away by the responses but I put a positive spin on it because yeah there there are a lot of things out there that I would like to do I I've written a lot of plays. I've got a couple of screenplays in me, one that was written on commission that could be turned into a film at some point. There are other things that I work on. I work in live theater. I directed uh, the play On Golden Pond mm. at Parkway Playhouse out in Burnsville, which uh, just opened this past Friday night. Right. 
their 71st season as a theater. Wow. And they lost their artistic director last fall after he had been there for 13 years. So this is, was the first season without him there. And I, and I had been working with him for years and years. And he, he's a close friend of mine. And, you know, I approached them and I said, you know, if you need me to help with the transition, I'd be glad to come up and, and help and do all that. So they asked me to direct the first and last show of the, the season to kind of book in the season. And, and I'm going to be on stage in a show up there in September cool. as well. You know, so I, I still, you know, every summer I still act and I still do other things on the side. And, and I've been directing more now. So, you know, there's there's some potential to focus a little bit on that because I've, I've put a lot of it on hold in recent years to, to do the radio right. gig because it, it is very time consuming. So, uh, yeah, so that's that's one possibility. Um, is that your background? I mean, are you yeah. are you so you went to did you go to college yep. and you yeah, were yeah. you have it? You majored in theater. theater. I mean, yeah. that's OK. That's my background. I. All of my training, uh, you know, and I, I can go back in time a little bit for you. When I when I was 19, or I was 18. I was 18 turning 19. I was graduating high school, and I'd done the drama club, and I'd done all the, the things in high school. And, uh, you know, I, I decided, oh, you know, I'm going to take a year off and discover myself, right. you know, this grand notion. And about two months later, I was pretty well bored. Uh, with <laughs> I've my... discovered myself. There's not much there. <laughs> yeah, there's really not a lot going on at, at 18. And, uh, you know, I, a buddy of mine had gotten involved in a local community theater and I was talking with him and, and, and he said, well, you know, I'm in this show and I think there's still some parts that they haven't finished casting. Uh, why don't you, why don't you come tonight? Why don't you come and, and, and see, talk to the director, talk to the, the guy in charge. And I showed up and I went up and introduced myself and I said, you know, if there are any extra roles, you know, I'm, I've got theater background and so forth, you know, just as being a kid at this point. And the, the guy handed me a script, and he flipped some pages, and he's like, uh, here, read this. And so I read it, and he goes, okay, that sounds good. Uh, that's your part. I'm like, all right, awesome. <laughs> all, this is, all auditions should yeah. be so oh my God. smooth. <laughs> and so I'm like, hey, that's great. And this was a Agatha Christie's Witness for the Prosecution, which is a big courtroom right. murder mystery thriller. And so you know, I'm sitting down flipping through the script, and I'm like, oh, shit. I'm, I'm the guy on trial. I'm like the, the guy who's accused of murder, and it's a big fucking part it's like a big deal and and so i just sort of lucked into this the director steve lloyd um had just taken over as the artistic director of that theater company uh, effective that summer and he and i uh kind of hit it off i did some shows that he directed and in 1992 he uh, asked me to join a touring company that he had on the side doing educational theater tours around the country uh, before I went back to college. So I, I'd already put off my college for several years, and I got a professional paid gig as a touring actor wow. from, from 92 until September of 93 when we ended up in Edinburgh, Scotland at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Oh, wow. Very then, cool. Then, then two months later, I enrolled in college. Okay, well, yeah. that's, I mean... So that was that's what, that's how my theater thing came to be. Well, so you did find yourself. I did, yeah. yeah. I, just, I didn't realize where I was looking, but I, I did find myself. Well, it's usually in, in the places we're not looking. Yeah. We, and, at and 18, that, you don't really know where to look. Well, no. And, and at that point, too, I, I wrote a couple of plays, and my access to the theater allowed me to get them produced. And Were they uh, any good? Yeah. Oh, they were fantastic. No. <laughs> no. I don't know. Were they? Uh, I mean, no. I'll tell you, accidentally, the uh, in the December of 1990, 
the theater was this uh, in downtown Waynesville, just 30 miles from Asheville. It was this old burned out movie house from the 40s and 50s. Like the balcony had been on fire several times. Like wow. you went in there, it was still charred. Wow, that's And the cool. fire marshal turned a blind eye and let this theater troupe perform in the main auditorium downstairs. And they, you know, they fit it with the stage and all that stuff. And so, but it had no heating and no air conditioning. It was kind of a rough place to work. A lot of pigeons called it their home. And so there was <laughs> pigeon shit everywhere. And, you know, kind of going in there, it was it was nice. It was a very visceral experience working there right. as an actor and kind of this is the hard luck theater life. And it really taught me a lot. But they uh, they couldn't produce there in the wintertime because it was so cold. So they would do dinner theater at mm. a country club mm. locally. Oops. The other end of the spectrum. Yeah. Well, you know, most of your audience comes from the country club side of things like your donors and your contributors and the oh, you mean sponsors. even in the even in the yeah yeah other yeah, theater yeah, okay yeah. makes sense so uh so they would perform shows there which were like musical theater reviews and uh you know some i my best friends were out of that theater experience so we would always collaborate and we would always show up and work with each other on shows so we i was there for this cole porter musical review show i don't do music i'm not you know a musical theater guy but i was there you know supporting my buddies who were in the show and I went to the cast party, and uh, they were talking about, well, what are we going to do next year? Oh, what are we going to do next year? Are there any musical review shows? Because this was the permanent space for those shows was this country club dining hall. Oh, what are we going to do? And they were talking about different composers because they had done Cole Porter. And they're like, well, we could do Gershwin, or we could do Irving Berlin, or we could do this and that. And I, and at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm just 20. I just turned 20. And I piped up and said, I love Irving Berlin. <laughs> I, uh, in fact, the uh, the song Always by Irving Berlin is, is one of the greatest songs of all time. Now, little did they know that I had only discovered that song about two months earlier when I saw Phil Collins in concert who sang it at the encore. And I went, <laughs> that's not one of his songs. So I had to go, like, this was before the Internet. So I had to go had and to figure Google out. <laughs> yeah, I had to Google before Google. Existed. I had to invent Google. Yeah, so, so I, I could figure out who wrote that song because right. it's a fantastic song. And then I, the songwriter was Irving Berlin from 1925. And so this was a cast party where everybody was drinking heavily, and they assumed that I knew something about Irving Berlin. So they, they, you know, Steve Lloyd, the the director, said, "Well, there's not a musical review about Irving Berlin that's out there. He'd only died a couple of years earlier." And he said, "We should do. We should just do one. Let's right. just do one, and you can write it." And I said, "Sure. Yeah, I could do that." <laughs> so uh, I wrote this play about Irving Berlin at the age of 20, which was professionally, I was commissioned and it was professionally produced. The The real wrinkle in this story was he had just died. And this is again, before the internet, before, right. you know, you can find anything. So I had written the show and picked out the songs and then we were holding auditions for it, you know, eight or nine months later. And they had had a hard time finding who do we apply to to license the music for this show mm. because the estate had, had sort of shifted around since right. his death. And they finally discovered it with the Rodgers and Hammerstein Musical Theater in New York. And so they faxed. They sent a fax. I can't. Of, uh, I'm trying to remember yeah. what that means. <laughs> they sent a fax. He, you know, here's what we're doing. We're a small town theater. Right. Uh, here's a list of the songs that we would like to license. Please let us know. Well, they called us. Or they called my friend Steve and basically said, well, there's a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, the Berlin estate uh, has put some strict conditions on this. His, his 
his actual life and music is something they don't want to intermingle. His personal story as a, an immigrant Jew from Russia in the late 1800s and all of this stuff. They're like, he was very guarded and very private. The, the family will not allow this to happen. Perfect. And so here we were. Oh, shit. What do we do? Yeah, really. What I mean, what do you do in a and, situation like that? And there was this question, and they looked at me. And again, I'm 20. They're like, you idiot. <laughs> and they look at me and they go, what do we do? Yeah. And I'm like, what do you mean, what do we do? Right, yeah. And, and so there were all these ideas like, uh, can you write something else? Can you can you write, you know, some sort of generic show and we can get a lot of different music and all this stuff? Or can you, if you can figure out a way to, to solve this problem, you can do it. And so I, I went to the director of the show like a couple of days later, like, you know, panic had set in. I'm like, fuck, what, you know, what am I going to mm. do? So I, I just whimsically thought, well, this this little wrinkle in our our story would make for an interesting plot device. Mm. What if what if the show is not about Irving Berlin, but the show is about a small theater troupe who are trying to trying make, a, to show make a show about Irving, Irving Berlin, Berlin yeah, right. and it's all restricted because of whatever is going on there. And the whole thing is the a dream sequence from the mind of the writer as he's sitting at his typewriter trying to craft the show with his door getting knocked on by people who want preferential treatment for certain songs and the director giving all this pressure, where's the script? And That's a great idea, stuff. yeah. And so I went to the director and I said, well, what if we did this? And everybody sort of looked and went, well, what if we did that? And so yeah. they called back to New York and said, well, this this is what we would like to do. We'd like to still do the music, but the, the script is not going to be biographical. It's going to be this. And like a week later, they called and said, Everybody that has a say in this has uh, reviewed your idea, and they have no problem with it. You go right ahead. So we became really the, cool. We became the first theater in in the entire world to produce a show of, of, of Irving Berlin's after his death. That was and, the beginning you wrote of my career, and I wrote it. That's that was, really cool. And you conceived the, of that idea like that's a great yeah. workaround. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was a lot of fun too. I bet. Except I had to play the writer. Like we all played. We you had to play we, the parts that you yeah, were. Yeah. yeah. To give it the authenticity. And, right. it, you know, the local press kind of publicized it, and there was a lot of to-do about it back then. This was 1991. That's totally cool. I love it. So that was essentially the beginning of my, my career as an actor and a writer. So that's where I started from. That is a long answer, I know. Well, we got time. Yeah, I, that's true. Let's I don't want the short answer. I, went to, <laughs> I have people who give me short answers. They're like, yeah, no, I mean, I went to school for it. Yeah. Like... If no, you answer no. every question like that, we're going to be done in seven uh, minutes. Fuck, everything with me is a convoluted story of how I got there. And I know learning to fail is the podcast. Trust me, there's a, a series of failures, you know, because I had, when I was 18, I had gotten involved with an older woman. How much older? Uh, she's like 20, Harold, 22. Harold and Maude? No, she was like 22. But you know, when you're 18 and you're you're hooking up with a 21, 22-year-old. Oh, yeah, you uh, can it's, drink. It's, it's huge. It's yeah. massive. Uh, so, I mean, I had... had suddenly you have of, more friends. Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> maybe not. It didn't help. But no, I mean, you know, the, so that ended, which was, you know, when you're 18, oh, God, right. it's devastating. It's right. devastating. There will never be anyone else. Right. You know? <laughs> and, and so I was in that sort of place when my my year off took, you know, a, a sort of a, a dark turn and, mm. and I got into the theater. And so, you know, the idea of that failed relationship, I mean, thank God that didn't work out. Right. You know, that failed relationship led me to to need something else creative which led me to all of, all of these other things. And, and you know, honestly, my my whole life experience has, has all been kind of around that. And I have this weird sort of way of analyzing things, but it even goes to the point where uh, 
you know, choosing not to transfer to UNC Greensboro when I was at college led me to meeting the mother of my son. And even though that relationship didn't work out, you know, there's, I, I can, I can always go back. And that's why maybe I'm taking the radio thing so well. I can always go back and sort of go, you know, this is an access point to something else. Right. You know, and, and you know, for some reason, then it's not as dark anymore with that perspective. Well, but it's also really, really true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. every time my, my, I remember when I was, uh, when I lived in LA, I had a furniture and cabinet shop and I had to move out of my garage. I'd gotten a project that was too big to build in the two car garage that I rented as a shop. Right. So I started looking at real spaces. And at the time I was dating a woman who lived in Oakland and she was flying into Burbank and I found a, I found a place that was in no way ideal but it was right near the Burbank Airport and right near Costco. And those were two places I went a lot. And a Home right. Depot. Like it was it was kind of near all the convenient. things. Convenient. It was what I, well, it was convenient, I thought, you know. But it wasn't near anything else in the world. It was just <laughs> near those three things. Right. Anyway, I didn't get it. And my dad's like, don't worry, you know, when a door closes, a window opens. And the yeah. next day I got the space that I ended up moving into, which was perfect. It was yeah. really centrally located. It wasn't near the airport. We broke up anyway. Like right. all the reasons I thought I wanted to be in this truly awful location right we're no longer relevant turns out there's costcos everywhere you know yeah. like uh, out there not here <laughs> not here and uh and and i ended up in this really ideal space with a great landlord who was really in favor of my being there and put up right. with a lot of a nu nuisance <laughs> for me and stuff and you know it all worked out great i mean that's uh and that's what you want. I, me I remember when I sold the business, the guy who bought it was in a part of town called Venice. So it was already a hassle for him to drive to the shop that he bought. But if I'd been in that other location, no chance. Wouldn't have never happened. It would have right? ne yeah. He never would have bought it, you know. Yeah. And so it really like everything. And that was a small thing. Like, ah, I wanted this one space, you know. Right. Everything that that happens and doesn't happen, it's all just part of the road yeah. to what happens next you know yeah yeah and and just being able to not let it destroy you when something bad happens and i think a lot of people that's that's the problem is they get to this point where they absolutely let it crush them right. to such a degree that the rebuilding part is is way too hard yeah and you know i i just don't buy that i you said something made me think there was a t-shirt i had years and years ago that i bought because it was funny i uh, it was a pair of eyes on the shirt with a word balloon that said, I know that when one door closes, another one opens, but man, these hallways are a bitch. <laughs> and I thought that, that summarized yeah. my, my perspective on, on life. It's like, you just got to get through the hallways. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's true. And hallways are, you know, dark and narrow. Yeah. Um, but you got to have good, you know, you have to have a good sense of humor uh, about it all. I know when you were saying that, I, I I spent a lot of time thinking about depression, not being depressed, but thinking about it. I have there's people in my life who are very close to me who suffer yeah. from it really dramatically. And and as I've been getting into comedy, I've been meeting more and more people who really suffer from depression. And the biggest thing that I have sort of come to, and I don't think I invented this conclusion by any means, but the people who are depressed seem to be really, really hanging on to the past in some way. Yeah. And when they're not hanging on to the past, they're very anxious about the future. Mm. And they are very much not present in their life. Like they're yeah. not, whatever is good is happening, they're not able to enjoy it. Whatever is problematic happening, they're not able to deal with it. The, and 
and that the the past is so heavy and the future is so uncertain. Yeah. And if you're living in one or both of those places, there's simply no way to be at peace. I mean, because right. even if the past is positive, you wouldn't be living in the past if you if that positivity was still present. Right. So yeah. it's just, it's so important. And there's some days I, ha I do this better than others, but it's so important to be able to really kind of be here now. You know, I yeah. hate to, I hear myself like all these cliches coming out of my mouth, but but it really is important, and that's not something you can be like. I'm just going to decide to be present, but it's like, right, right. Because if if it's overly intentional, it'll never work. No, no, because that's yeah. that's not really being present either. Right. That's yeah. you know. Okay, now, now, no, yeah. now. You're now. creating an artificial appearance of being present when you do that. Exactly, yeah. and there's nothing more exhausting than people who are artificially present. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man. I remember having a conversation. Yeah. I like to. T I. I I've said this more than once in the podcast I, you know, I have this friend of mine I'm very close to, and we were having this really heated conversation. And then he finally gave me a chance to speak. Mm. And I shared a lot of stuff that was really on my mind. It was really important to me that he hear it. And when he was done, he said, now you see what I was doing there while you were talking, I wasn't even listening to your words. I was just being present to right. your tone and your energy. I'm like, are you telling me you didn't hear what I just fucking said to you? Wow. I was so pissed off. I was like, I can't have conversations with you. That's yeah. not present at all. No. Like you think you're being present. You might have been present for you, but you weren't present for me right. one bit. Right. It's, it's I needed equal, you to hear that. It's an equal give and take. Yeah. It's, it's so, got to be. It's yeah. So anyway, so it's just interesting yeah. like yeah. how easy it is to think we're being present and really not. Yeah. And um and and how just sticky the past is and how yeah. un how sort of out of reach the future is. And it kind of always is, right? Because it's always in the future. Right. And it's always changing too. Right. You know, uh, it depends on, on what you do and how active you are in the present as to what the future becomes. Right. That's, that's yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. You, you can have a big impact on the future by how you behave yeah. in the present. Well, dep depression is an interesting, interesting thing too. I've only, I've only had to deal with it once and I didn't realize it until three years later mm. that it had happened. And, you know, coming to that realization after the fact was a real eye-opener for me. And, and it's really, in a lot of ways, has changed the way that I, that I look at things. Because by the time I had recognized that it had happened, I was coming to the end of my marriage, my first marriage, mm. and was having that difficulty of sort of coping with get, getting through the present and, and trying to secure the future because I was relitigating the past or trying to solve the past. And it was during that exploration that I realized, oh, my God, you know, I spent a year being depressed and didn't even know it, that mm. I spent a year of that time uh, when my son was, was very, very young and his mother and I were uh, you know, struggling mightily uh, to sort of figure out what we were going to do. I, I had sort of slipped into this dark place that was... Mostly, I thought, just internal to me, but apparently everyone else was acutely aware of it. Right. They just weren't sure what it was right. at the time. So it's, you know, I, I feel bad for a lot of people because, you know, sometimes you don't realize that you're in that place. That's true. That's for yeah. sure. And, you know, acknowledging it is really hard. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, I've yeah. been, you know, the last couple of years I've I've had some like depressive periods and because 
I've been around depression that's so fully debilitating. It has been really hard for me to acknowledge that that's what it was. Right. And, you know, it's a little bit like having a parent who's an alcoholic and not being able to acknowledge your own alcoholism. That is not an issue in my yeah. case. But, yeah. but the depression thing is real. Like yeah. it runs in my family and, and it's, it's been pretty devastating to members of my family and, and not only to them, but everyone around them because they take all of us down with them when it happens. <laughs> and, right. and, you know, so then when I was like, you know, just, wow, I, you know, I think I'm depressed and sometimes just noticing it and acknowledging it is enough to kind of turn the corner for me. You know, right. I'm lucky. I don't, I don't. I don't yeah. suffer as severely as people who have real chemical sure. depression. Being, that, a, being able to see it and identify it and then stay grounded is is a key, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That you recognize the the pitfalls. A lot of people it's a lot of people are in denial of there being a problem. And so that I think that that really can trip people up, you know. I think you and I am the same way. I think there's a, a strong degree of self-awareness that that keeps us stronger now than maybe we were when we were younger. Yeah, hopefully, you yeah. know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we, we certainly need it. Being creative, I mean, you, you doing comedy and, and with, with the things that I've done too, there is, that creative expression can be very raw at times. Right. And, and you can be much more honest uh, sometimes in, you know, for me and things that I write or think, you know, other, other ways I can sort of translate. And it works out great as therapy hmm. as well, like a catharsis of sorts. And I've done that on occasion where I've, I've dealt with problems by uh, writing a play about it or, you know, finding some creative place to, to place it and work it out to the point that I, I help solve some of my own problems while doing it. And I'm sure that, you know, comedy for you probably works the same way. Well, especially in the beginning when I yeah. first started doing it, um, I wrote a lot about my ex, uh, even though like getting out of that relationship was not awful for me. Right. Like I, you know, um, I was trying to be is careful. That, is that bef during or after? Like, is that hindsight going? No, the whole was thing. Of, no, the whole thing. But I, but I did end up going through a pretty awful time with it when she started seeing somebody new. Right. Not that I was, I didn't know what happened, honestly. I just was caught off guard by it. Yeah. And and then suddenly having to make room for this other person in my life and my child's life, like that was pretty dramatic for me. Right. And then there was, it just wasn't handled well. And, and anyway, there was, I don't want to air our, that piece of our <laughs> right, personal, right. I, out of respect for her. I don't mind sure. talking yeah, about yeah. my own stuff yeah. on here, but I try not to overdo. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you know, and I've, I've been through a similar set of circumstances as well. Yeah. And when you're dealing with a kid, that makes it a lot different. It makes it tough. Uh, yeah, it makes it, it makes yeah. it different. Luckily, I have just an amazing relationship with my daughter. I mean, she's with me half the time, and we have really awesome, we have a really yeah. awesome relationship. And, how, and how old is she again? She's nine. She's nine. Uh, you got about three or four more years before you have to start fretting about that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure yeah. we will have our challenges. We already have challenges. Yeah. But we just have a great relationship, and, and we're learning how to handle each other better, and, and hopefully... I know it's no guarantee, but hopefully our ability to relate to one another yeah. and handle those conflicts, because they, we already have conflicts that feel very teenage. Oh, know? sure. And well, girls get there a lot quicker than boys. Yeah. For sure. I've got a 14-year-old. My son is 14, and he's just a raging pain-in-the-ass teenager right now. 
but I have a 10 year old stepdaughter and, and she's, like, and she's, she's the same. Uh, no, no, no. It's no. Well, actually I can see it coming, but for the yeah. past couple of years, you know, since she was about eight, uh, I've, she and I have developed a really close relationship, uh, just in time for, you know, my son mm. becoming, you know, a know-it-all teenager. Right. Right. So. And does he live with yeah. you or? Yeah. Yeah. He, um, he lives, uh, his mother and I have a week on week off, yeah. uh, arrangement. So it's 50, 50 kind of, yeah. kind of thing. And, you know, I have uh, remarried and I have, you know, a stepson and a stepdaughter. So there are three, three kids in the household now and we're fully integrated. We have been, uh, gosh, for seven years okay. at this point since the kids were pretty young. And, you know, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a true family uh, sort of thing, which is kind of nice. That like, is nice, yeah. You know, my son has siblings for one week and then he has, you know, a dog for the next week. So he's <laughs> kind of the best of both worlds, right. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, my daughter has a dog in both houses. <laughs> now, see, so. does that make the dogs jealous, though? Is that, nah, is that they don't you know? care. Nah, they don't care. Yeah, that's, they that's, don't good. Care. that's good. They don't feel like she's cheating on them. No, okay. apparently, no, not that I know of. You know, okay. this dog that I have is oblivious, and you know, right. oh, my dog. I, I'd like to call it our dog, but she's really my dog, and I don't say that because I want it to be that way. Right. I really wanted her to be <laughs> more present for our daughter, but yeah. Um, but she's very, very attached to me, and my it hurts my daughter's feelings. You know, it's like, oh, wow. yeah, it's yeah. you know, she's like, oh, she doesn't like me. She hates me. I'm like, okay, dogs don't hate anybody. Yeah, you know, yeah. And I said, you know, it's not she doesn't like you. You're here half the time. I'm here all the time. Right. You know, I am her life blood. Like, if it's right. not for me, she doesn't eat and everything else. Like, and she just she knows that. So that's her. She's going to make yeah. sure that she knows where I am she, all the she's time. She's got a good thing going with you because you're her means of survival right yeah, exactly yeah. yeah i'm just like that's all it is she's like but i feed her i do this i'm like yeah but you're only here half the time you know right well right. mommy's dog you know she's she's not like that and i said yeah but you've known that dog since that dog was a puppy right this dog's eight you know <laughs> big difference like yeah. it's a big yeah. difference yeah. but even so now the dog's really actually in the last in the last month the dog's really kind of turned a corner with us too it's been interesting she's she's uh, gotten to be a, in many ways a better dog in, in, uh, the, in the last that, little while good. so yeah because i was on the fence about keeping her um she drives me nuts. I kind of, here's the terrible thing. I feel like I've gotten as much as I'm going to get out of this dog comedically. <laughs> right. I have this well, great bit good, that oh, I, there's, yeah, yeah, I have this, yeah, you know it. I have I this do, great yeah. bit about the dog and I just, I'm not going to get a better bit out of this dog. And I just kind of like part, a piece of me is like, well, I don't see the point in keeping her around, you know. Comedically, I don't need her anymore. Do you ever threaten the dog? You go, I, I'm done with you comedically. I'm going to get a cat next. I should. I, I totally see. should. I'm allergic to cats, so I've already milked my okay. cat material yeah, without yeah. even owning one. But, uh, yeah, I don't know what I would get that would... that would A parakeet or something. Something that would bring new material. Yeah, yeah. It's That's the interesting thing about doing comedy. I still I feel uncomfortable being like calling myself a comedian. I don't feel there yet, but... Um, <laughs> The interesting thing about doing comedy is is really everything does become fodder for material. And oh, yeah. so I'm constantly seeking new experiences for the sake of developing new material around it. Yeah. And I remember I met a woman uh, last summer and I shared some of my comedy with her because I thought that would make her like me more. And she liked the comedy, but that did not make her want to be my girlfriend. She's like, <laughs> she said... Oh yeah, I'll, all I want is for you to you know write about me and talk about me in your next comedy show. She's oh, like, there's the paranoia. That yeah, she's in, like, yeah. I'm not interested in being your next you know three minutes of material. Right. 
And so that was a little bit of an eye opener, but whatever. I, I've, it's funny because as a writer, you know, in my 20s when I was a, a playwright, I was writing all of this uh, sort of self-effacing Woody Allen style comedy. So mm -hmm. anything that happened to me in my life was fodder for that. Right. Uh, to the point that that became very uh, prohibitive for girls to date me. Right. At a certain point. In fact, and, and you'll appreciate this, this is... This is the truth. This might sound like a comedy bit, but this is the truth, is that uh, when I was in college, I was dating this girl, and you know, the relationship was coming to the end. It may have already ended, and we were just having the, the occasional revisits that led to tension and mm. conversations. But we were having an argument, and I don't even remember what it was about at this point, but we were really kind of having this aggressive sort of conversation. And the writer part of my brain was enjoying it because it was like this this is really good this banter is really right. kind of I'm learning going. a lot right like, now yeah, yeah yeah I'm becoming a better uh, writer uh, yeah yeah say more tell me more <laughs> well and and so much so that literally I I at the conversation it went on and there was a certain point where we had exhausted all of the talking points and it was just starting to to get circular right and and it went on and went on and I, there was one point I looked at her and I said well I got let me stop you let me just stop you right there because I have not really been in this conversation for the past five minutes, but I couldn't figure out how to make it stop because it was such good dialogue. <laughs> yeah. And what was her response to that? It was not nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was some, there was some language. Uh, no, no. But it was one of those things where, you know, as, as a 20 something writer, you know, there was the, a certain air of being pompous and yeah. being able to say you know, deliberately working to try and, and be witty all the time. In real life, and to to constantly be looking for good dialogue with people because oh this helps me as a writer oh I'm going to remember this and put it in a, in a script or something like that, I went through that phase. Yeah. yeah, I think I think you kind of I just realized like I'm going to try to remember to put this on Facebook because somebody posted the other day, how do you know when you're a comedian? Right. And everybody wrote down these different ideas. Some were self-effacing, some were genuine. I think you know you're a comedian when you interrupt intercourse to write down a joke. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and that has yeah. happened. Yeah. You know? Like, oh, wait. Yeah, I like, wait a minute. I got to write. That's so funny. I got to write that down. Yeah. And uh, that, that's that's when you know. So <laughs> maybe I'm closer than I think. Well, you know, the, it gives you a, a really nice sort of perspective to, to not take things too seriously, I think. It helps. Yeah. It helps for sure. Uh, it also makes me want to kind of go in all the way and run it to its nth degree because right. that's where it's, yeah, that's where I'm going to get the the best well, stuff. Well, I, I wrote I wrote a play when I was in college. I was I had to take directing classes and and they make you direct a one act. You know, you take directing one in the fall, and then directing two in the spring, and and at the end of the fall semester, you submit a one act play that you're going to direct in the spring. Right. And uh, I, I kind of played it close to the vest. I was writing a, a script, a one act. And I thought, I'm just going to turn this in. I'm going to write and direct an original play. And this was one of the, the first, you know, really big turn in the corner kind of plays for me. It was a mid-90s comedy called Anglo-White Heterosexual American Men, which was all about political correctness and these two guys who are relatively clueless on how to deal with any of the women in their lives. Right. And, and I, so I, I wrote this and I kind of forced it on the department because they're like, I, I turned it in and they were going, wait, you wrote this? 
no, 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 no. You're supposed to give us one. And I was like, you never said that. Right. And it's the last day of the semester and I don't have another option. And so they begrudgingly let me do an original play. And the girl I was telling you about with the uh, the good dialogue conversation, the breakup had happened just previous to that. And so there was a lot of that being written into this script. Right. And uh, including this female character getting to show up and tell this guy off and put him in his place and, and really kind of bring his ego crashing down within the script. And so I, and I wrote it and I floated it around the department over the Christmas break. And then we had auditions coming, you know, Janu late January. Well, this girl, my now ex, showed up and auditioned for that part. Oh, my God. And I cast her. <laughs> and and during the when the performance was going on, I there was all, all of this sort of like people, all my friends looking at me, you know, looking around at me sitting in the back of the theater like, oh, I fucking can't believe that you would be brave enough to do that. And that she would. It's like they were going, this is this is psychotic and but it was great I it was bet. like it was really really great that was really and genuine her performance was fantastic and everybody's going we never knew that she was that good and it's like well you know you just didn't make her mad enough you didn't make her mad enough but it was like you know in a small community like that everybody knew everybody's dirty laundry right. so there was plenty of stuff they were like oh shit i can't believe but it turned out to be a, a great thing and it, it turned into one of those play scripts that was so inspired it uh, a couple of years later, as I was finishing college, uh, was submitted for Kennedy Center short play college oh, wow. competition, and I was uh, well, I was second runner up regionally for the Kennedy Center thing, which I, I tell people all the time that's kind of like getting a bronze medal at the Olympics. Uh, it's great. You get to keep the medal. You get to right. brag about it for a while, but you're not going to end up on a Wheaties box. Nobody remembers no, your name. Yeah. No Reebok contracts, none of that stuff. Right. So, you know, that was kind of one of my big turning points as a, as a writer creatively was doing that, but it was all based on a real, you know, situation. Not the best things are. Yeah. Yeah. I think you have to, I think that's what keeps it honest. Yeah. Yeah. Other, otherwise it's not as, as genuine, I suppose, uh, for the audience, you know, the, the comedians that I like are the ones that I feel connected to, that they're they're not just doing bits, that they're actually, it's based out of something that's coming from someplace real. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah who are some of your favorite comedians, present company excluded? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a big, uh, Louis Black is my spirit animal. Okay. Think, yeah, Cranky yeah. Old Jew is my spirit animal. Uh, Louis Black's one of those guys that I really respect a lot. And have had the good fortune of meeting and, and oh, that's cool. getting to spend some time with him. And I directed a play that he wrote. And oh wow! Oh yeah, yeah I think yeah. you told me that once upon yeah, a yeah. time. Yeah, he's he's trying to get this play of his out there, and he, he you know he's he's told me he's a bit hamstrung by it because people will pick it up because of his name, but the script is not anything like his comedy. Right. So it's like they can't really yeah. market it based on the fact that he wrote it. That he wrote it. Yeah. So it, it's he's in this really strange catch twenty two. But it's a very, very funny show and and it's based on a real life experience of his when he was getting out of college as a young man. And you know, it's one of those great opportunities. Again, the radio thing allowing me to exploit or leverage as you would you'd put it. Yeah. That I've gotten to interview people like Lewis Black and, and sort of vaguely get to know him over time. John Fugelsang is another uh, great, great comedian. He's more of a political commentary guy. He's got a serious XM show. Uh, I've really gotten to, to know and like him quite a bit. He's a great comedian, but he doesn't do it a lot. 
No, he, he used to be. Back in the day, he was one of those stand-up comedy uh, guys coming out of the, the early 90s who had like a half-hour VH1 show about movies or <laughs> movie trailers right. or things like that where Mark Maron was on VH1 for a while in the yeah. early 90s. All those guys. He, can, he comes from the same class of comedians that Mark Maron came up with. It's amazing how many different things these people have done before they became names that we recognize. Yeah. Yeah. That blows my mind. Well, like, you know, Lewis Black was was in his 40s before he, I think he was 40 or 41 before he did a full set stand-up yeah. show. Was I like, was 46 you know. before I did my first five. <laughs> yeah. So. so it's never too late. So tell me, you and I have been working together a little bit on your show, Maintaining an Election. Right. What's the future for that show? I have no idea. No. Okay. That's, well, you know, it was it was it was funny because you know you and I have gotten to know each other in the past year and a half or so, and, yeah. and you know it was we had a great chemistry right off the bat. So when I was tasked with doing this, and the Magnetic Theater had, I'd been speaking with them for a number of years about working with them. You know, as a playwright, they do original works, and you know how how can we get you in here? What what do we what can we do? to collaborate on something, you know, do you have any ideas? And so we tossed around ideas for a couple of years. And and finally, uh, Steve Samuels, the guy who runs the place, he and I sat down last December and, and he said, well, we want to do a late night offering, right. you know, to try to get more people in there and diversify the kind of audience that's coming out to the space and really kind of open it up. So they had been looking at a variety of different things in a late night setting. And I pitched them uh, a couple of ideas just off the top. And one of them was an idea for a, a live, interactive Asheville version of like a dating game show with contestants and do, you do like a live That's game so show. That's so funny. I had that idea at one point years ago. Yeah. I was going to do, I had a, and I was going to call it something, it's going to be a little bit different. Um, I don't remember what the twist was that I had in right. mind, but I was going to do an Asheville dating game. It was yeah. when URTV. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah it happened. Yeah. And I was going to do it on URTV. It was one of those things where I'm like, God, it just lends itself to such great stuff. You know, if you were YouTubing or it was up online, people right. would watch it. You know, you could have, you know, uh, LGBT totally. episodes where it's, you know, guys dating guys and girls dating girls. Or you could have, you know, tattoos and piercings special. You know, you could do all kinds of Asheville-centric right. sort of stuff. And I pitched that, and, and, you know, he liked that idea. And I was like, you know, uh, just randomly. And I said, I could do a late-night TV talk show version of my radio show. Hmm. And he was like, oh, my God, yes, that would be fantastic. You know, you do that with guests and, and that format, you know, right. the late-night format. And when I started to put the thing together, uh, you and I had, had been spending more time getting to know each other. And I just thought, okay, you know, for the first show, I need to have – uh, a good musician. I need to have a good interview guest and, and a, a comedian. A good I wanted, enough comedian. A good comedian, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I wanted it to be a longer episode, like the first one be a, a bit longer, because we were doing it in prime time and not right. late night. And I thought, well, to launch this, this would be good. And, you know, you were the first person I thought of uh, to kind of bring on board, because I know you're a real pro, and, and I thought this there's a good balance, and I felt comfortable with you just from you know, the limited interaction that we had had right. uh, just sort of hanging out. And we had, you'd been on my radio show and, and thought, well, this was, this is a lot of fun. This is a really cool guy and loved having you back. And, but the thing that, that did it really was, uh, I know you and I, we got together socially or, or had a bitch session about, right. you know, comedy and radio and all that stuff. 
you know, back when was it December, November? Yeah, sometime around like the holidays. Yeah, yeah. yeah where yeah. you just said, "Hey, would you like to meet for a drink and, and talk about stuff?" And I was like, "This is a guy I want to work with." You know, I just I felt instinctively. I thought Jason and I could really do some pretty cool stuff together if and when. Right. So April the 1st was the the when. And it went over so well. I thought, wow, this is this is really good. And a lot of it was was kind of you telling no. me that it was good. No, I mean, well, you know, you you were kind of the barometer for me because I was kind of a nervous wreck. This is the most nervous I had been in years. I mean, I That's understandable. Uh I can go do theater. I can go I you know, I God help me, I played John Adams in 1776 six years ago and had to had to sing and act like a big giant three-hour epic play as the lead guy. I was less nervous about that than I was about going out there and doing comedy live in front of an audience. There's nothing more terrifying. I mean, yeah. with good reason you were Yeah. You were nervous for this. And, and just then, so you know. Yeah. Like, and then, then you came back and you were just like, man, you killed it. It was great. And I was like, really? Uh, you know, and, and Rodney Smith, the guy right. down there at the Magnetic, the same thing afterwards. He was just like, dude, that was awesome. Yeah, it, it really was. was. awesome. And it really made me kind of go, okay, this there is more to this than just doing it the first Saturday of every month here at this location, potentially. And you brought it up. Yeah. In conversations like there's we can do something with this. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, totally. I mean, it's so I mean, it is a show that can travel. Yeah. Um, And, you know, you inspired me to do my new comedic right, venture. Talk right. about funny, which I, I, I couldn't go to because it was I know I was going to have show. you on. I was like, yeah, this will be perfect. Be I'll put Jeff on my show. Everybody loved it, apparently, though. I mean, I heard from people who went. Oh, great. It was great. I'm so glad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I will tell you, it was not as, I would not say it was as successful a first show as your first show was successful. Like, okay. um, I mean, it was, we packed the house. We had a hundred yeah, people yeah. and everyone Which had a good great. time. I yeah. mean, it was, it was definitely people laughed that they engaged. We had their attention for most of the night. Like right. it was definitely, it was positive, positive, positive. Uh, but I mean, yours was off the charts. You well, know, I and I appreciate that. And, <laughs> you know, you. we had, I mean, we, but, you know, with, with comedy, see, you had you and, you know, you weren't sure how your thing would go over and it right. went over great. Yeah. And, you know, you brought me in to do comedy and I have at least one 10 ish minute, 10, 15 minute routine. That's solid. You know, yeah. I know it's, it never fully fails, you know, it, it's no, it's and, great. Yeah. And in that crowd, it did amazing, yeah. you know. But it's like it's just it's good enough that I know I can do it anywhere and it'll it'll yeah. do okay. Yeah. So you know, then in your next you had a musician who's amazing, and then you had a politician who's really really interesting, smart, and yeah, yeah. the but least politician. Both of whom have done the show, or, or they both been on they here. They both yeah. been on, yeah, yeah, on here yeah. as well. Um, I felt you know it was one of those things where I felt like uh, I brought a lot of the right people together, uh, just out of sheer happenstance. Well, you to create it a sheer to, happenstance. To, to you create a the last. Four and a half years, plus however many years before that, right. creating relationship with the community, and then you decided, well, who are the three people I want to yeah. bring in and make sure they're, you know, yeah. they're on this opening show. Yeah. And you had, wanted to make sure the first show was as yeah. strong as possible. Yeah, it, and it was really strong, and yeah. I was thrilled to be a part of it. Yeah. I mean, um, so. Well, we got the I got the YouTube page locked down and, oh, and good. all yeah. of that stuff. So you mean maintaining an election wasn't taken? No, it wasn't taken. I was <laughs> I was shocked to tell you the truth. I was shocked. You know, I, maybe it was because it was YouTube. If I'd gone to like you know one of those other websites, maybe it, it would be taken. I don't know. You know what's funny is I created a production company 
called Marquee Comedy. That's going to be yeah. my my comedy production company. Um, and they will ultimately be the umbrella company for learning to fail and everything else. Everything right. will fall under Marquee Comedy. And, you know, MarqueeComedy.com was available. I couldn't believe wow. it. Yeah, yeah, I know. I took it right away. And Facebook and everything. You sure you and spelled then, it right? <laughs> yeah. That's, I, that was the first thing I checked. There was the, yeah. there was the option M-A-R-Q-U-I-S, which has a very different uh-huh. uh, connotation. You'd have to go Marquee Day, Day Comedy. Yeah, Marquee Day Comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Uh, so I decided, you know, I would stay with this one. But that would have been actually a real, also a really great name for different reasons yeah <laughs> uh, but anyhow the but the twitter is taken there are like a couple things that are wow. taken okay. yeah and i think i think even gmail might have been taken i don't remember but hey there are a lot of assholes some... out there that just go around like scooping up websites and, and but they emails. didn't have the website they, they didn't, didn't have, have website, facebook which... those would be the first yeah. two for me wasn't it uh jebbush.com somebody uh Somebody got it because he didn't have it locked down. Oh, really? Turned it into like a pro LGBT. Uh, oh my website. god, that's so funny. That's perfect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I got JasonShoulder.com, but I can't. The Jason Shoulder Twitter account. Some kid has it as my name and lives in New York. He never uses it, so I'm going to ask him for it. I'm going to ask right. the Marquee Comedy people for it too because they don't use it. Right, right. It's just somebody's got it. And they got it. and They're not using it. it. I'm yeah. just like, can I please use it? I would like to build this brand. You know? Right. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so. Uh, you inspired me to do this comedy talk show combo. And I think uh, that's something that I feel I want to do it a few more times to kind of dial it in. But right. I really feel like that's something I can take on the road, too. Yeah. And and I, you know, I, I think everything about what you did inspired me to think differently about what I wanted to do. It wasn't like, oh, I was on Jeff's talk show. Let me do a talk show. Because I remember as soon as I had the idea, it's like, I got to call Jeff right away and make sure this doesn't piss him off. Yeah, you know? no, no. Um, I, I, and I, I appreciate that. But no, I, I, I'm not somebody who sits there and goes, oh, I've got the corner on this idea. And, and the fact that you were inspired by how well that first night went for whatever reason, I think that's great. Yeah, well, and, I, and, I, and I'm not doing the same show. I'm doing, right. you know, just a comedy show. Yeah. And... So, you know, yours encompasses a lot more things. Like if I was doing the same show, I would feel that. Somebody came up to me after my show and said, this was great. I'd like to, with your permission, I'd like to do this in Greenville. Oh, I said, you nice. can bring me to Greenville and do it. <laughs> there you, you know, go. Like, That's right. I'm like, you don't have my yeah. permission to take my idea. I didn't have to yeah. say that. I know him. And I, I just, I just phrased it in a way. I was like, hey, if you want to do this show in Greenville, I'd love to do it with you. It's right. like, Absolutely. oh, perfect. You know, yeah. and I, we just handled it that way. But I was like, mm, you can't just come to my show well, and that's, then, I mean, that's the key is it. finding that, that corner of the market that you can stake a claim to. I, in, in my first two years in radio, I got approached by a regional publisher to do a, a political satire book, which I titled Red State, White Guy Blues. And <laughs> he was like, that, that's your brand. You need to make that your brand. Right. And uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, we'll see. And I was supposed to write a second book that would have ended with the uh, election results in November of 2016, but I have not been able to get back to that because there is no natural conclusion yet. Oh, right. Uh, to the past couple of years of politics, like the first book encompassed uh, tw- uh, through 2014's election for a two-year period, and I thought, well, we'll just do every two years. I'll put out a new edition of right. the book, and I was like, fuck, we can't find the end of this story. Yeah. Now, plus, do you want to put that book out every two years? Do you want to redo that every two years? Well. 
at the time it, it felt like the right thing to do and a smart mm. thing to do. And, and it was tied much to my radio life and personality over there. But it, like I said, you know, this election wasn't the end of the story. It was the beginning of a whole other dark, weird tale. Oh, man. And I thought, I can't find the end of the book. I can't find where to end it. Maybe that'll come. Maybe it won't. But I just couldn't write it. And so it's it's been on hold for a long time, which is is kind of, that's fine. It's neither here nor there. I did not sell a million copies of the first one. Right. Uh, but this maintaining an election thing that came along, I'm like, nope, that's the brand. Mm. Not the red state white guy blues, because that's too limiting. Mm. It's too specific. Maintaining an election is kind of the thing that I want to chase for a while now politically and comedically. And, and if I do turn back up in radio at some point, other than iHeartRadio, if, if whatever happens and I end up back there, that's, you know, a whole other situation. But if I do stuff from here on out, I think it's going to be using that as the launch pad. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So. So will it stay political? I mean, is that, I mean, with maintaining election, that kind of makes it a, that calls yeah, it a political yeah. show. I think, I think it, yeah, it has to to a certain degree. I mean, I know you you come out and, and don't do political stuff. I don't do political stuff, yeah. But that's that's part of the the format, you know. All the late night talkers, they do political right. comedy and then they bring out a, a movie star or a musician or, or whatever and right. and they change course throughout the show. So it's a variety show more or less yeah. under that umbrella. Um so yeah, we'll we'll see where it goes. Yeah. Well it's cool. Yeah. I mean it's yeah. it's uh, you're really good at interviewing people. One of the things that I realized, well, I realized a couple things when I did my show the other night, because I was you on my show. That's right, I was yeah. interviewing everybody. Yeah. And, you know, the first comic was the guy I co-produced the show with, and I know a couple of his jokes that he didn't get to tell, so I asked him questions where he could basically oh, do his okay. routine. that's good. Which is a lot of what I, I now yeah. have figured out happens on Conan and the Tonight right, right, Show. Right. They, you know, Ask me about this. Yeah, they yeah. said, ask me this question, and then I'll do this bit. Yeah. So they're really doing their bits on the couch instead right. of at the mic. And sometimes this is after they've done their bits at the right, mic. Right. And like Rodney Dangerfield was the first person I realized was doing that. You know, Johnny Carson barely had to say anything, uh, yeah. and he would just sit on the couch and just keep doing bits, you know, yeah. and just, just busting up everybody because the guy was so hilariously funny. Anyway. And that's why you want him on the couch. Yeah, that's why you want yeah, him on the yeah. couch, right. Yeah. So, so... Uh, this time I brought people to the couch and I kind of figured like I knew what I wanted to talk to them about a little right. bit. Uh, but I realize in the future, I will make sure that we work out those talking points ahead of time because I did yeah. not do that. And the reason I didn't think I'd have to do it was because when I was on your show, I said, Hey Jeff, do you want to work out any talking points? And you're like, no, I think we'll just shoot from the hip. See. I'm like, okay. And of course with right. us, that's the nature of yeah, our yeah. entire relationship. So it was pretty easy. Right. But I didn't have any established rapport with these guys, and it didn't necessarily uh, go as interestingly. So it was as harder, it harder to find stuff to talk about. Well, and that, that happened to me in the uh, in the second maintaining an election show to a certain degree. I had more planned questions for my guest that night because mm. I didn't know him. I just right. met him. I just met him once, and I thought, oh, you know, it's it's free comic book day. This guy's a comic book writer that lives in Asheville. I'll tie a theme together. Now, I did. You may have seen on Facebook that day, I tried to find a cosplayer to show up as Batman and just sit on a stool. Oh, yeah, I so remember. That we yeah. could, so that I could refer to Batman the whole night. Right. Because I thought, oh, thematically, I want to do this. And I, and I couldn't find anybody that was available to do it. Uh, but I, I, you know, Matt 
Manning was my guest, uh, and I I felt like it was a little bit harder with him because I didn't have that rapport. So I mean, I know what you're talking about. Well, and not everybody knows how to be interviewed on the couch. Like, right. I remember right. one of my comics who I really like a lot. He said, "You know, I I'm sitting here thinking, like, are we interesting enough to be interviewed?" I was like, <laughs> "Right." Well, you were until you just said that. Yeah. You know, like yeah. that. All you have to do is be up here and be funny and entertaining and engaging right. and and further, you know, sort of the yes anding of right of interviews and well, anyway, the, was, the, the key too to to me, you know, because the first time I met you, I didn't know anything right uh, about you, uh, and you know, the the key to that for me in the radio world was there, you know, folks are coming on to talk about what they're doing. Right. You got to make them comfortable enough to open up because there are a lot of people who will clam up. Right. And and it's rare. It's been rare that I've had anyone on the show who has just been a dead fish interview person hmm. because I can I can keep it going. You know, that, that improv skills like I can sort of bullshit my way through until the person's comfortable enough to talk about themselves. And I think, you know, you, you got to have some humor about it as well. It may be tougher with comedians. Because everybody's always trying to think of what's the punchline. Yeah, they're all I mean, sitting right, on the couch going, of, "Yeah, they're all right." Yeah. No one wants to be setting up the other yeah. person. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I I'll tell you this is this is funny. Uh, if you don't plan for it, it can be more entertaining because something random can happen, right? And interesting can happen. And so I would get people who would say, "You know, I'm coming on your show. Can you send me a list of questions that you're going to ask?" And I would always say, "No." I don't know. I don't right. know. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to ask. You're here to talk about something. We'll just see where the road takes us. And a lot of people are terrified at that. Like I need to prepare. It's like no, you don't. Just right. be you. Just be you. I had uh, some uh, beauty pageant girls on the show several years ago. Miss Asheville, Miss Blue Ridge Valley. Uh, my wife was t sort of tenuously tied to that because she was a Miss Asheville in 1996. Oh wow. So uh so there was a connection there where it's like, "Oh, can you get them on your show?" And and I did. And so this one girl who was Miss Blue Ridge Valley, which is everywhere not Asheville. So okay. that's the larger thing. We were in the interview talking and she's she's like, uh, "So when is this going to air?" And I said, "It's live. We're live on the radio. <laughs> We're live on the radio right now." And she looked at the banner on the wall, which says 880, the revolution, 880 AM. And she right. goes, she goes, I, oh, I thought it was on in the morning at 880. <laughs> which, you know, a beauty pageant sort of person. Oh, my God. It doesn't help their cause that, uh, yeah, that she yeah. did that. That is too uh, much. But the other girls that were in the room just really busted up like, you're an idiot for saying that. Uh -huh. And I and I kind of looked at her and I said, I said, well, Technically, I think that would be around uh, 9.20 in the morning. <laughs> no, no, no. That's AM radio. And she's like, oh, my God. So, you know, oh, my God, it was one of those so things horrifying. where you catch that spontaneity. I can't imagine being that show. dumb. <laughs> I mean, that's awful. Yeah. Going through life. I mean, I've said some dumb things in my life, but nothing quite as bad as that. Yeah. You know, Um but wow, that's like I'm speechless. Yeah. Eight eighty. Oh, I thought that was the time eight eighty a.m. in the morning, right? Yes, <laughs> eight eighty a.m. So that would be nine twenty. 
And I was, you know, here's the shocking thing was that the, the punchline for me was so good. I was able to do the math that quick. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. I was like, in my head, I was like, I'm pretty sure it's 920. I was like, I was doing it too slowly yeah, yeah. to be funny about it. But it, it was like, it just presented itself. And I was like, there's the setup and here's the takedown. Yeah. Boom. And there it was. And the great thing is that I, I saw her on a couple of occasions since then. And now it's a shorthand reference in the conversation. So she laughs at it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh. she totally does. Like she once she processed it, was like, "Oh my god, I can't believe that I said yeah. that." Yeah, yeah. It was pretty funny. That's really funny. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's difficult to interview people who you don't know. You know, you don't have a frame of reference for just a, as an interview coming in. Like if you're just doing a dry interview. It's easier, I find, to get them talking about themselves, right? to get them comfortable with the conversation and, and sort of forget that the microphone is there, to sort of forget that, you know, maybe there are thousands of people listening at, the, at any given moment and just relax and, and hang out. And that's, that goes back to that eavesdropping approach that I, that I take. And I, and I don't have any sort of background in interview technique or tactics, it just that... That was what came naturally when I started doing the radio show and, you know, served me well. And I, and I think it comes across, too, as not artificial. No, I think what like it's works authentic. about your show is that you're genuinely interested in what people are talking about, or at yeah. least you fake it very well. I yeah, that's so where the theater background comes in. Yeah, that's, that's where the, the acting, acting comes in. Acting. Hey, whatever it yeah. takes, man. <laughs> I mean, you do, you seem, as your guest on the show, I've always felt like, you know, you, you were curious, yeah. Like maybe at least curious. If not, maybe interested is too strong a word, but always curious. And well, I've got and, a trivial pursuit brain is the way that I'm I'm set up. Oh, I see. It's like I again it goes back to I know a little bit about a lot of things. So uh, I I absorb stuff. I, I also have a really good uh memory, mm. like uh an associative sort of memory. Like I can remember back to being two years old. Wow. Things like that. And and in in clear precise details wow. and I, you know i think uh, mary lou henner has like the the zenith of this sort of condition yeah she has photographic memory yeah, yeah. like perfection like yeah. every detail of every conversation i'm not quite that way but i i do carry a lot of baggage in my head you know because i hang on to stuff and so every opportunity to talk to someone is creating new bits of knowledge mm. and i listen to a lot of podcasts because I want to pick up other details and other bits of information. Right. And I, you know, knowledge is just one of those things that really is attractive to me. Like the more, the more that I know so much so that, you know, back in the day, I used, we used to play trivial pursuit with friends back in the nineties. And, uh, I had friends who quit playing with me. They're like, because you're too good at it. We're not playing with you. Yeah. Because I could, I could bullshit and pull things out of, out of it. Like I could look at a word and and go all right. What so this is a from some sort of Latin derivative sort of thing, you know? And I could sort of suss out like the the chemistry words, the sciencey things, oh, wow. and sort of just apply that. And I would team up with somebody who was really good at other things like sports and stuff like that. Yeah. But I could pull, you know, what won best picture in what year, da 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 da. And I and I could work my way to a lot of the stuff. The one game, the one element. This was the winning answer. And this is why everybody quit playing is uh, the question was an arts and entertainment question about uh, who was the first commercial sponsor of the uh, TV show, the, the TV show Superman back mm -hmm. in the day. Right. 
And, and I, I, I did not know this. This is not knowledge that I readily had available. But I sat there in my head and I just said over and over again, Superman brought to you by, and then I, I started plugging in products that would have existed in the early 1950s. And I landed on Kellogg's. Uh, and, and I went, right. son of a bitch, that sounds right. <laughs> and I went, Kellogg's. And everybody just like threw their shit down and they were like, <laughs> like we're done. It's like, how? How did you do this? And I told him, I said, I just went through my head and went, the Superman brought to you by Kellogg's. And I was just like, it just sounded right. Oh, my goodness. And so that was the end of my trivial pursuit sort of thing. So I don't know. It's just that's the way I'm wired. And I always have been. I want to say, like, that's lucky for you, but I'm not sure it is. <laughs> Yeah. So, but you know, but, so but I, I speak... but I use logic though because I I thought what products existed back then, you know, you know, you, you have to you have to know a certain amount of other information to to get to that. Yeah. No, it wouldn't have yeah. occurred to me to use logic to answer trivia questions in yeah. that way. Like I, like and then I should deconstruct it. Yeah. I bought my daughter this really cool game. We haven't played it yet. It's called Timeline, and you pull these cards out and then you try to place them in history where you think they would have happened. Oh, wow. And See, I would dig that game. Yeah, it's, and yeah, then there's yeah. different categories, so you can end up combining all the different games together. There's entertainment, and there's right. science, and there's, you know, I don't know, archaeology, I mean, architecture, and so there's different different ones. So it's pretty neat. Um, there's inventions, and I don't we haven't played it yet, but I definitely I want to do it. I yeah. think it would be good for both of us, because I'm not good at placing things in time. Well, you know, it's and it's one of those things with today's society, there's not a lot of emphasis sort of put on on having that type of knowledge, that sort of deductive reasoning, critical thinking is no longer taught, uh, which is, is really frightening for me. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's all, yeah. I teach my daughter that all the time. Yeah, because I, I made C's in school. I made, you know, I was not, I was an average student at best, but I, I was really turned on by just knowledge all over. The, like if I found something that I was interested in, I would deviate off of the lesson plan and go research that. Mm. You know, as opposed to acing the test about subject A. Well, it sounds go, a little uh, bit like what you did in college with your play. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's uh, it's the patterns of my life, I guess. Yeah. You know? I once I, I I did really badly in a Shakespeare class once because I, I drew all these conclusions like, you know, I actually thought about it. Right. And I said, well, Shakespeare is saying this and this philosopher said that and this other person said that. And I said, these things all come together. And my teacher gave me, a, you know, like a D to be nice. And he said, you know, that guy wasn't even alive when Shakespeare was writing and he didn't read that. And I was just like, you're so the next and I and then a, a woman who had uh, was also in my class. I read her paper. She literally she almost plagiarized the article, but then cited the article, you know, and <laughs> got an A. Yeah. And so the next time I took his I, the next essay I had for him, I did exactly that. He's right. like, see, Jason, I, this is how you take a test. I was wow. like, wow. I was so disappointed because right. when I was in high school, my English teacher said, I want you to think. Right. I don't want you to barf. I don't want you to learn something and come in here and barf it back out of me. Right. He said, I don't care if you're right or you're wrong. If I can tell that you thought about the answer, yeah. you will get an A. If I can tell that you didn't think about the answer, you will get a C or a D. Right. You know, and... Unfortunately, that's the way that, that the schools are set up now is just regurgitate whatever I just yeah. told you. Just oh, spit it back at me. Yeah, that's awful. Um, but, you know, you have you have a chance at home to give your kids a different yeah. experience. Like, you yeah. know, teach them how to – this is how you – because also learning how to study for the test, that is a skill right. that will help you in your life. Sure. But the other skill you'll need is critical thinking. Like that one's going to – although right. I think yeah. – 
you'll, big you'll need to know you, you need to know why those are the answers to the test right too yeah. and that's what's missing today is they you know, they're like you need to know how to do it you just don't need to know why right you know yeah i know it's yeah, yeah. i don't, I don't like it, it. it is frustrating and yeah. you know and i and most of my knowledge and most of my passion came from you know watching movies and being inspired by you know crazy shit like that i mean i, I was seven when star wars came out and it's like Oh wow! You can do this. You can tell. You can have this kind of imagination and do this, and and that was one of the things that sort of kickstarted me into being more out of the box as mm. far as this thing. I I mean, I grew up in a small ass little country town, you know, rural America. But to to sort of see that it was it was movies, TV, and comic books were the things that showed me this broader sense of thinking. Right as a kid. Because I was trapped in a place that didn't didn't allow that, did not allow for that, and aspiration was not something you know in the mid to late seventies that you had if you were in one of those places. Like, oh, you know, you can grow up and you can go work in the textile plant like your grandfather or your right. whomever. All that shit's gone. You know, there's that generational thing, that cycle that people had fallen into doesn't exist anymore. So I think I'm more suited because I was a rebel during those years right. to kind of be flexible and, and just sort of bounce from other places. But I still have that, you know, it's like, I know you've got the, the Jewish guilt thing from uh-huh. your mom. I've still got that Southern culture sort of guilt of, you know, you're supposed to go to school. You're supposed to get a practical education. You're supposed to get a job and, and by this point be married, by this point have kids, yada, yada, mm-hmm. yada. Like there's that standard that doesn't exist anymore but I'm still guilty about it. I'm still somewhat guilty about it, or I was. I'm not anymore. I, you know, by the time I got into my 30s, I wasn't so much. But that, well, that's the way we've always done it. It's like there's a generational sort of guilt. You know, when I was a kid, all of my aunts and uncles and grandparents would get together for Christmas and Thanksgiving, and everybody was there, and it was a huge thing. Nobody does that anymore. But I still have my mother who's like, well, I wish, I wish that we got together more often or we did this, and, you know, that cultural shift. Are you from, where are you from originally? R- relatively close to Asheville. Yeah. Like 30, you know, Waynesville, Haywood County. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I love yeah. Waynesville. It's a cute little town. Yeah, it's great. Um, I, you don't have a strong accent. No, that was the, that was part of the theater training. Uh, part uh... of, well, you know what? I, I, that's, that's not a hundred percent honest because that only, solidified it the uh, when i was a kid growing up everyone was countryfied mm-hmm. you know redneck i mean i by all intent and purposes i should be driving a pickup and i should have voted for trump right yeah uh, based on you know the background it came from but one of the things that that really set me apart was i watched a lot of game shows like remember when the game shows were on in the mornings yeah during the weeks you know, let's make a deal and the Joker's wild and all of those yeah. things. As a kid, I, and that's where a lot of this useless knowledge comes from. I watched Watching all of all those shows. freaking game shows at my grandmother's house when I was a kid. Were you homeschooled? No, no. This was this was before I went to school. Wow. Uh, you know, when I was like four. Wow. Yeah. It's like, I, well, you know, and I learned how to operate the, the turntable, you know, the, the record player in the living room and all that stuff, too. So I was always looking for these outlets of things. But... Um, yeah, I watched all those ridiculous game shows. And then when I was in school and I would come home in the afternoons, I would see the the end of uh, General Hospital 
and then an hour's worth of MASH reruns and syndication. And so right. the TV show MASH became the first, it became where I got my sense of humor from. Mm. You know, Larry Gelbart and Alan Alda. And it's like this, that sort of approach to humor, like the jokes and the setups and the, like the delivery and all of that stuff really was something that, that was, I was very impressionable. And, and so it, it, it took, and I became, uh, as a kid would mimic things that I was hearing. And so I changed my own speech patterns because of that. Wow. As a kid, I, I developed a more neutral accent. Yeah. My daughter does not have a Southern accent and every once in a while she'll say something that comes out Southern and her teachers are typically from oh, the sure. South. Yeah. But most of her, a lot of her peers, their families are not from the South, you know? Right. I mean, half of them are or more than half of them are, but half yeah. of them aren't, you know, so much of Asheville is from somewhere else. Right. And so it's not like she's living even in Waynesville or somewhere where it's right. really just a lot more local flavor. So she doesn't have a Southern accent, which, you know, frankly, I'm relieved. Yeah, because I mean, teachers, a little bit yeah. is, is, is nice. Yeah. You know, it's the little Southern twinge in the background is beautiful, but... but... Well, and, and, and our kids don't. I mean, my, my wife has a much more Southern kind of dialect, um, but our kids really don't, even though the teachers are a heavy influence. But it's like, you know, my... my my nieces who live in Waynesville s still and are around that culture more often, they do mm. because that's the dominant right. influence. But my son doesn't because, you know, of my influence, I suppose. It's weird, you know, because kids listen and, th and they mimic. They pick things up. Oh, and, yeah, totally. Yeah. So it just depends on what they're exposed to. I'm amazed. My daughter is starting to ask me questions that let me know that she watches every single little thing I do. Oh, boy, that's like, scary. It is crazy. Yeah. yeah. And... So I'm definitely trying to be more more <laughs> mindful. But uh yeah, you just you don't realize how much stuff they're taking in until they spit it back at you. Oh yeah, yeah. My my son, uh I, I get this pointed out to me quite often as he's becoming a uh sarcastic teenager. Right. It's like it's it's your fault. Yeah, it's yeah, just, right. You're a sarcastic. It, he is exactly like you. And in fact, when I'm trying to be a parent to him, he is being me back to me. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not the way this works. <laughs> it's like, yeah. 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 No, getting them to understand that is, that's part of the challenge. Is yeah. This is, you need to still be a kid just because you I see know. me misbehaving as an adult. I know. Now I have a wife and an ex-wife who both are like, he's just like you. <laughs> he's just like you. Like, oh, and you're getting, you're, they, they are united on that. Oh, yeah. yeah they're in, in full agreement. That's funny. And then he takes it as a badge of honor. And I'm right. like, no, it's like, no, wait, wait until you're in your 20s before. Yeah. yeah. So that, that is one of our ongoing debates is, you know, you cannot be a 14 year old smart ass. That doesn't work for you right now. Right. That's certainly not yeah. working for me right now as your yeah. father. No, it's not. Not at all. Yeah. Well, I want you to know, as I just as I think about this transition in your life, first of all, I'm really happy. Uh, I'm going to say I'm really happy to be a part of it. <laughs> I, I've decided I'm going to be a part of it. Yeah. I hope I can be a part of it. Well, sure. Yeah, and, absolutely. And um, well, you were one of the first people that I thought about, you know, and I did literally my my Facebook and my phone, everything blew up. And, I, and when you and I finally got around to, to talking via messenger, I. I had said, man, I'm sorry I didn't get to you earlier. And I, and I meant it, that there were there were a handful of people that I was like, I, I need to give them some kind of heads up. And then it just unfolded so rapidly. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the, just the sheer volume of, of stuff I was having to address and deal with. 
that I, I wasn't able to sort of personally talk to to all, all of the people that I wanted to talk to and just go, hey, look, this is what's going on. You know what I would say is anybody who would have had the expectation that you owed them that, right. you can take them off the list. Yeah, and nobody did. And yeah. that's it. All those people on that list, nobody nobody came back and going, oh, I'm, I'm so offended that I didn't hear this. No, I was just like, I'm, I felt bad that I didn't notice it for 24 hours. Like, right. I just didn't happen to be doing a lot of Facebook that day. And Facebook has these weird algorithms where if you interact with somebody else's page, they right. don't show up on yours. It's like bizarre. it's all this one way relationship thing that yeah. I think has to do with the really defective psyche of Zuckerberg who created this thing. Yeah. Because you know, he had if you watch the movie, which I'm sure is hundred percent accurate, <laughs> um, the social which network well written, it was if, all if about it was really well written, yeah. yeah. It the the thing that I think um he tuned into, whether it was accurate or not, was just this one the the way Zuckerberg experiences the world as a one-way relationship right. that he's not a part of. Yeah. And so I feel like whatever logarithms he created, he's created a lot of one-way relationships because the people who sure. tend to like and comment on my stuff, I don't even see them in my feed. And the people right. who I like and comment on, they don't seem to like and comment on me. Yeah, it's, it is weird. My wife is even like, I didn't, not, none, none of your stuff comes up anymore on my, my page. Yeah. And I'm like, really? It's like, why is that? That's bizarre. It's very bizarre. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, who knows what it is? They keep changing all those. those they do. Things. But, but anyway, so it just, you know, I, I'll just say officially for the recorded record, you know, <laughs> Uh, I'm flattered that you felt yeah. like I, I was someone you should have reached out to, yeah. but there's not a piece of me that felt that way. Um, I just was really shocked and blown away, as I think a lot of people were. Yeah. And what well, was unexpected? I mean, there was no sign, you know, no indication of it happening. No, because a week ago it. you were telling me, like, Jason, I think I'm going to be going national soon. Like, we're, they want to take this show. We're getting an FM. FM, yeah, FM signal, you know. And as it turns out, getting an FM signal basically just brings in a different music format and perhaps is tempting them to, oh, let's just go over this direction fully because it's easier and it's right. cheaper and, and all of that stuff. It, it could have been that that ultimately became the excuse. Sure. Who to, knows? I mean, it's all related. I think yeah. all these things, you know, had to contribute to their decision-making process. Yeah. But yeah. I think, you know... But you're right. I would have had I would have had a bigger signal. So maybe they were like, oh, I've got to cut that shit out. Yeah. It's That's yeah. possible, you know. Uh you know, you said at some point, you know, that you ha you sort of confessed having this uh, affinity for the level of celebrity that right. you've attained. And, I mean, that's understandable. Asheville's a town where you can be just famous enough that it truly isn't annoying. It's like uh, <laughs> right. it still mostly yeah. feels beneficial. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. L losing that. It's the, it's the only thing that the narcissism that kicks up in me is like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm now going to be cut off from from this. I'm not sure that that's going to happen is what I want to say to you. And, yeah, and, you know, you're still you and people still right. have if they if they had a genuine interest in who you are or or say if they had a genuine interest in who you were, they will have a genuine interest in who you are. Right. And if they didn't, then they won't, you know, and that's that They'll yeah. it'll be, you know, what was in it for them. And, and you'll find out who who's you'll find out who some True. of your real friends are. And that'll well, I, I also today announced too. the uh, a Facebook event for the next Maintaining an Election show. And, uh, All right. Yeah, called, I saw that. Yeah, Maintaining Election 3, Radio Free Me. Radio Free Me. Which is, you know, and so I, I'm, I'm touting it as, that. well, this is, you want to know what's next? 
here you go. June, right. June 3rd, this is next. You can, so we'll see. We'll see how, how and people And you know I'm not here that. for that, right? I know you're not here I for know, that. I'm sorry. I like, know, I know. I mean, but, you know, it, it'll be... But for the audience, for the, you know, we'll see. It'll be good yeah. for them to have yeah. another comedian. I've only got one more... 15 minutes set that they haven't heard. Right, and then yeah. I'm so, then so July. So by August, you have to have a new. I'll have to write something things, yeah. entirely yeah. new. Yeah, I could do I could do one more set for you that okay. would be new for them. Well, that'll be July. So um, we'll okay. Well, that, that's great if you yeah, want to yeah. have me back. But oh, yeah, yeah. No, people love you. I, you got a following out of that, too. Well, I wanted to say I wanted to speak to that a little bit um, because I remember when you had me on the first show i was like i've invited people but nobody's going to come right. nobody cares about me i was kid i was a little <laughs> overstating it and you said well right. that's going to change on saturday night or whatever and i was like right. okay you know and i really honestly didn't think it would yeah but it really did like i yeah. really developed some some people who have they came back the next month not just because of me but they were happy i was going to be yeah. there yeah. and then they came to my well, they show were asking for you is jason going to be there is jason going to be a part of the show oh my god yeah. that's great that's really, I mean, it's just really sweet, especially because you know that I have been struggling to uh, get really a lot of traction in the local comedy right, scene here. Right. So the idea that another group of people has seen me do comedy and reacted really positively is very gratifying for yeah. me. And, you know, I, I, I guess I don't need the existing comedy scene in the way that I thought I might. You know, right. not abandoning it. I was still yeah. I certainly pulled from those people to. But there are other avenues, other doors. That kind yeah, of well, it, I wanted to say that I I wanted to really express some very you know direct gratitude to you for that because, you know, I really did pick up some you know fans like some yeah. first fans and somebody S came up maybe to me even at an stalkers event. <laughs> yeah well it could get that way yeah. uh, I was at an at a, another event for J P Sears and someone came up to me and said excuse me are you that are you the comedian you know, she remember my name. I said, right. yeah. She's like, I, oh, you were really great. I really enjoyed your thing. And will you be back or something? And I said, yeah, I think I'm supposed to be in the next show. Yeah. Anyway, it was just the first time ever that anybody has said, are you a comedian? Are you that comedian? <laughs> you know, so that was really neat. And that was 100% from your show. And, wow. you know, Rodney is having me open for the trivia night yeah. tonight. I'm, yeah. I'm there like, which is great opener which is totally I, cool. i've been on the uh panel for that show only once but okay. I'll, I'll be coming back at some point they want oh, cool. me back yeah, I'm uh, sure, it's, it's, I'm a, sure it's a fun show yeah now the you know the the thing about it is that i i feel like maybe my skill set although there's no one hiring for this right now is uh is community building like creating this network of of, of loyalty and this network of of people who are, are really genuine people. And yeah. that's, you know, that's the nice thing is that I, I feel like I can attract those kinds of folks who, because I'm, I'm as genuine as I can be. I'm, I'm a loyal person right. to, to a, a fault sometimes. Uh, don't ask my ex-wife, uh, <laughs> but no, no, you know, it's one of those things where I, I sort of feel like, and maybe that's more what I meant instead of the celebrity thing being gone, but all of the relationships, all of the communication that's been built up over four and a half years, it was built up for the reason that I was there with a microphone. And now I'm not there with a microphone. So where does this community live? Where does this community exist? Or does it was the thing that we had in common. It's much like, you know, high school friends. Right. You know, that thing we had in common, we don't have in common anymore. Do we still hang out? Well, I think... That? you will now have a little more proactive choice in the matter. 
you'll yeah. be able to decide who you hang out with and who you don't, who you True. who you bring to your next level and who you don't. It'll be up to you. Yeah. And who follows is up to them. Yeah, right. Yeah. You'll see yeah. who's like who's genuinely interested and who is just right. for whatever reason. And some of it you shouldn't take personally and some of it you no. probably can no. and no. and and it's still not not necessarily should, but could. Yeah. Uh but you know, I just have to believe that what's in store for you next is going to be pretty awesome. I mean, you've really yeah. this the maintaining election show is funny, yeah, and and good, and people like it. Right. I mean, I don't know about the time slot they've given you. I just I <laughs> I think you're working. I want to talk about uh, about that with Rodney too. I yeah. think you're. I think I think it's working against. You're working against yourself yeah. with that, and I don't. Well, think they're, you they're trying to develop a late night thing. This, I know they're, they're but, in this experimental. They're learning right now. So, but we'll your see. your audience is older. Yeah. And they are not going to come at 10, 30, 11 at night, you yeah. know? True. It's we'll, just... We'll see where it goes. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I'm I still in the experimental phase of figuring this thing out, too. I would like, you know, to do it earlier or do it different places or, you know, who knows? I mean, well, we, we I think, anyway, that. I think it should be a discussion. I think we yeah. should, you know, um, to the degree that you want me involved, I'm happy to just be a sounding board for you. But to the degree that you want me yeah. involved, you know, I would like to help you find other avenues for it right. um you know he rodney told me today he said make sure you remind me to talk to you tonight i want to start a stand-up comedy thing at yeah. the magnetic so i'm certainly going to do it if he wants to do it yeah but and i'm flattered and thrilled that he's choosing me to you know spearhead it or whatever. i don't know what he's going to say to me yet but it sounds right. like that's yeah, where yeah. he's going with it and he had mentioned something to me the first night I met. He's like, if you ever want to do something here, talk to me. And I right. haven't really talked to him. So now he's saying, okay, I want he's, to do something yeah, here. He's, he's serious about it. Yeah. Right? And so yeah. now he's talking to me about it. And and he saw that I produced a show and whatever. So, right. uh, um, Well, you're not fly by night. I mean, it's, you know, th there's a quality that you, a standard that you uphold. And, and you bring in professionalism to it, which is something that can be hard to find. Yeah. You know, so uh, they they want it to be good. They want it to be professional, and yeah, you know. Well, Barbie was there at my show. Rodney couldn't be there. Okay, but yeah. she was there. She's amazing. I'm gonna. Oh my god! I'm interviewing her on Sunday. I can't wait. She is unbelievable. She's like you know, she is Miss Asheville. She really yeah. is. Yeah, she yeah. really is. She is. Uh, she actually ended up sitting across from my mom at the show on Saturday. So my okay. mom got to know her a little bit. And my mom was like, she has really just invented herself. Like she is this amazing person and pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah. just this, I'm going to be this thing. Nobody's asking for it, but I'm going to be it. And then now no one can live without it. It's, she really it's, has. Yeah. And, but she's so great. Like she's yeah. genuine. She's kind. Like yeah. she's generous. I, I think because there's a woman in LA like that called Angeline. Okay. And she's, you know, all plastic and she drives around in a pink right. Corvette that says Angeline on the license ah. plate. And her mm -hmm. her job is being Angeline. And she'll occasionally right. be in a movie as herself in the background because people want her there. Like that's yeah. her that's her livelihood is just she'll wow. she'll go to parties just so people can say that she was there. Right. And there, you know, she might find it flattering. They or might be doing it as a joke. I mean, sure. You know, yeah. she's this weird fixture. Uh, same with this guy who named. There was an actor. I think his name was Dennis or something. And he's like, you know, and on the side of his car is like actor Dennis and his phone number. You know, like <laughs> right. And 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 so he's been in movies as yeah. himself. Anything, you know? anything, a, a gimmick, a thing. Yeah, you know, anything like, to yeah. just get noticed in a town like L.A., which is hard. Yeah. 
But but my perception of Barbie, and I'm looking forward to talking to her more when I get her in here, is you know, she's really, really genuine about yeah. what she's doing. And she just she loves all the stuff going on around her and she likes being a part of it and she likes knowing about it. And she she's created this ethos for herself that I think is is very cool and yeah. very unique and very genuine it, absolutely and and she, you know if if she likes you she really likes yeah you. i mean she's she is absolutely genuine and honest and and just one of the greatest out there well you know what's funny is like because i'm always assuming that like she and rodney were laughing so hard at my second show <laughs> right i was like they can't possibly mean that because the first show everybody was laughing that hard the second right. show half the audience was laughing that sure, hard because sure. it was a little more challenging material right and but they were laughing really hard, and, and then when she came on Saturday, she was still laughing, even though she'd heard all of that already. And and then, but during some of the acts, she wasn't laughing. Hmm. And I and then I knew that when she does laugh, it's real. Yeah. yeah, that was how I knew was because she she laughed at things that were funny. Yeah, some things she didn't find funny, and she didn't fake it. Well, and, and that was the the first show. That was the big reveal for me in the first show. And I, I think I talked to you about this and, and you kind of concurred. And it was like, even though it was a friendly audience, they were not giving free laughs. No, they were not. It's yeah. like, you know, th we were earning. Absolutely. Yeah. The laughs legit. Yeah. Which is like, wow, that, that that's almost making it better. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. No, I mean, ultimately, no audience will give it to you for free. No. You know, they'll be they might laugh a little louder, a little harder, a little easier. But, you know, they're giving you 10, 20 percent. They're not going to give you 100 percent. Right. You still have to earn the rest of that laugh. And so it's uh, and I've been in audiences where they were there to laugh, but they just don't think a liberal Jew is funny. You know, <laughs> right. and so they well, stop playing those Baptist picnics. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> My mistake. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I played a bar mitzvah in uh, in Boston. My like my fourth cousin, but I'm close to him as a friend. Him and his sister, I'm close to both of them, even though as blood relatives were actually far enough apart we could all marry. Um, right. We won't, but we could. Again, that's that might be a Baptist thing. I don't know. <laughs> well, Baptists, you don't yeah. have to be so far apart. Yeah, but that's true. Anyway, so I you know, I, I had said, at one point, he jokingly asked me if I was going to do stand-up. It's like, you're going to perform at the bar mitzvah? And I was like, I think all my stuff's a little too adult. And then later I realized, you know, I could do my Jewish stuff. You know, it's oh, not sure, yeah. Adult. And I said, you know, I actually do have some material I could do. He's like, I don't think there's going to be time for it, Jason. I said, all right, well, if you want it, it's out there. If not, I don't care. I'm not a, I'm not a, attached. Right. And they found themselves with a lull during dinner. <laughs> and he came up to me with no notice. He's like, hey, do you want to go on stage right now? And so I did it. And and uh, it was a weird room because, first of all, I'm standing miles away from the audience. Like there was a big empty dance floor oh, in front right. of me. Oh, right, yeah. You know, and they're just on the periphery at tables. And half the room, or, or like a third of the room is kids because it's a bar mitzvah. So that a third of the room is 14 and under. And then the other two-thirds of the room are family. And a lot of my, that entire material is, a, you know, a conversation between me and my mom, you know, about getting a tattoo or a motorcycle. And I don't right. want to, you know, I've already spent eternity with my family and I'm making fun of her voice. It's not actually how my mom talks, but it is how half the women in that room talk. Sure. So I realized I was actually making fun of the people in the room, and it didn't go as well as I would have <laughs> right. thought. You know, like, oh, Jason, that's not funny. Yeah, that's not uh, funny. They're like, "What do you yeah. mean you don't want to spend eternity with us? That's us too." You yeah. know, it was it was very uh, know your audience. <laughs> that part was funny. Yeah. Well, I was yeah. I thought it would go great 
because they would they would appreciate it as Jews, but it was almost too close to home. Too, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because you know, there again, there's that. I was sitting there going, "Is he talking about me?" Right, exactly. The paranoia kicks in. The perfect audience for me is a non-Jewish, but Jewish sympathetic audience. Right. You know, people who like Jews, but they're not Jews. Theater crowds are great for you. Theater crowds are great for me. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Oh, love it. Yeah, yeah. Sort of anyone with an education. If you put me in a room full of uneducated people, they just don't, they don't get where I'm coming from. You know? I feel the same way. Yeah. Well. Yeah. To a certain degree. Yeah. 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 Well, sure. you're you're when you land on the left, then you're narrowing your audience. It's tough though, and, and I I did discover that part of part of my success in radio had to do with not being overly judgmental and trying to have a conversation with people who were coming at it from the other side. Yeah. And to not offend them or to not drive them away so that by the end they would look back and go, wow, that was, a, you know, I feel like that was a fair conversation. And we agree, actually wound up agreeing on certain things. You got to get people to put down their, you know, their wall a right. little bit because everybody's walking around, you know, with these giant gates with electrified, you know, fences and razor wire at, yeah. at this point. So if you can get behind that wall and just try to have an honest conversation, that's, to me, that's going to be more productive. Right. You know? So I, I picked up fans from across the, the political partisan divide over my time there because the attitude was to treat people fairly, even if I disagreed right. with them fundamentally. So Yeah. Well, and they probably weren't too far to the other side, but they might have just been, you know. Yeah. Well, I had a few people I thought, boy, this is someone who's looking to to reform. This is yeah, you know, right. someone who's like looking for answers, not getting them from the other side of yeah. the, the political spectrum, and then finding that I'm I'm not some boogeyman from the left and actually am interested in having a conversation. Maybe I can lead them to the light a little bit. You know, so we'll see. We'll see. All right. Well, <laughs> I look forward to seeing what you do next and I hope to be a part of it. And well, yeah, um, no, we, we got to talk about, yeah, absolutely. Down the road, we'll talk about more things. I mean, literally, there's no shortage of things that I, I have cooking, uh, including potentially uh, a movie situation that, yeah, I, you mentioned that, that I got myself into about a year ago just because I know a guy over here with a, a, a property and a screenplay. And I know a guy over here who works for a movie production company and putting them together in a room and walking away going, well, you're going to be a producer on this when and if. And I, I thought, oh, well, gosh, okay. Yeah. That, that's been limping along for the past year. And now that was the, one of the first things I did on Monday after the, the radio show ended was I, I sent a message to the guy in, in the film company mm-hmm. and said, all right, I'm not doing the iHeart thing right now. And I feel like we've kind of let too much time pass since we were working hot and heavy on this project. Let's let's go. So and, we'll see where that goes. Has, have they gotten back to you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so they they responded positively. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, it's great. It, it's a it's a situation where uh, all parties want to make it happen. It's just a matter of sort of figuring out in in the new world of movies and Netflix and all you know the the new paradigm that exists. How do we move forward with this? Uh, it's an independent film company, but you know they're talking about twenty million dollar budget. Wow, type stuff. And they have access to twenty million dollars. Yeah, 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, yeah. Let, me so, know how, let me know how I can be a part of it. <laughs> yeah. I, well, and I was like, I'm pretty excited about it. But uh, again, you know, it's in a lot of things like movies, especially, it's one step forward, two steps back. Oh, yeah. Movies uh, are, movies uh, are yeah. a long, that's a long haul. Yeah. Uh, you uh, know, I have a production company. It's small, but I mean, I have, yeah, yeah. I have experience in film production. So, well, what I'm not going to oversell myself, but I'm, I'm not uh, ignorant. Yeah. That. Yeah. What, one of my ideas behind this is to uh, shoot a documentary around it, too. Mm. Uh, so yeah, that's always a fun thing yeah, to do. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's based on a, a comic book property from the 1980s. That was, uh, one of the biggest independent comics of the, uh, of that decade. All right. That was turned into a TV show that lasted seven episodes in 1987 and was optioned for a, a film in 2001 and got derailed because of funding issues after September 11th. It's It's been on the cusp for a long time, oh, wow. but it's just been sitting there. Uh, and I happen to have befriended the guy who was the owner of the intellectual property. Cool. Who's a hero of mine from when I was a kid. My oh, first, wow. My first comic book uh, has his name on it. Oh wow! When I was a kid, so it was one of those weird, and again the door, the doorways and the, all that stuff yeah. opening up. You know, well maybe you'll things. finally have a chance to pursue some other things that you just couldn't do while yeah. your hands were tied to a desk every day. Yeah, I th I, did, I think I did say that in my statement about uh, you know being untethered from a microphone right. five days a week, three hours a day. It's it's a liberating place to be. Yeah, you know, because sure. I, I couldn't put all of my focus on any one other thing i could dabble in a lot of things but it was uh slow moving right and now you know all of those things can move faster so that's that's an exciting place to be well i'm excited for you man i just you know keep me updated keep absolutely. me on your short list please yeah oh, absolutely and um you know and when your next sort of phase happens you know let's come back in here and talk about it if you want i mean yeah no i'd love to uh you know now i'll be wanting to put you on my show all the time you'll be like hey jason i got something to talk about <laughs> oh man, i don't I quite wait. have the uh the reach that you had but maybe i will now that you've been on my show i, I think yeah yeah i think uh i was really impressed at how many people showed up for you for your debut event mm -hmm. and um and how into it they were and how loyal they were then, you know, to me and then, to, you yeah. know, I don't know what Bree's experience has been. I don't know if she gained some fans out of that. I would oh, hope yeah. so. No, you know? absolutely. So She's, it's like, yeah. it's just, it's, those are quality, I would call them like right. quality leads, you know, it's like, yeah. those are people who, who will want to do something. Your friend uh, who has her um, barn party every year. Yes. She is talking about doing a fundraiser a comedy related fundraiser and she wants me involved. She wants us both involved. Yeah, yeah. She messaged me yesterday about yeah. Susie. Yeah. Yeah, Susie, yeah. 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 She she's great. Um, she's uh she's like, I'm gonna have Jeff MC it. I'm like, I'm gonna wanna MC it. She's like, oh great. And I was like, well and then I thought about it. I'm like, wait a minute, I can't take that away from Jeff. I was like, Yeah. Perhaps Jeff and I can uh, we'll figure can it MC out. it together. Yeah. You know, I was yeah. like, we'd have fun doing that because right away I was like, I was just thinking as a comedian, like I would like to MC in a, the event, you right, know. But yeah. then I was like, wait a minute, this is Jeff's no, 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 like no. I'm not going to get in his way. We'll have fun. But, it's but, very uh, casual, you know, and they're yeah. great. They're great people. And that's that. If anything, that's the coolest part of it is. Yeah. They people showed up for that first night. And it's because uh, I've got I've got great friends. I've got a great community yeah. around me that that I've built over time. And, you know, the more people that join, the better, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you and, and, and Brie Capone and all of those others. Uh, 
it's per I feel like those are permanent relationships because of shared experiences and and we all benefit from that moving forward. That's all you can ask for. Yeah. Cool, man. All right. Well, thanks for making time to come in today. Uh, and, it's my pleasure. And uh, enjoy whatever happens next. Uh, I, it will be an adventure. Hopefully this hallway is a short one. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff has so much experience as a host, he made for the perfect guest. I love being on his radio show, and I'm proud to be an integral part of maintaining an election. Jeff and I plan on working together for years to come. I can't wait to see what we create. If you like what you heard, please visit our website, use our Amazon portal, and rate us on iTunes. Make sure you tell your friends about Learning to Fail, and if you feel so inclined, make a donation on our donation page. That way, we can keep failing for free. <laughs>